Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. July 24th, 1984 started off as a perfectly normal day for Alan Lafferty and his family. He woke up early, he went to work, left his wife Brenda and his 15-month-old daughter Erica at home. But then that evening, he returned home to a bloodbath, to a husband and father's worst nightmare. His family had been butchered. Brenda and Erica were both dead. Their throats cut in an extremely violent attack, their home covered in blood from Brenda's struggle with her killer. Alan was initially the prime suspect. Right, the husband so often the perpetrator in cases like this. And when police arrived at the scene, he was covered in blood. But soon he was able to convince the police that he knew two people who wanted to kill his wife, his own brothers, Ronald and Dan Lafferty. And Alan turned out to be right. Ron and Dan, along with two accomplices, had committed the murders and then fled the state. Why did they do it? Why did these men brutally murder their sister-in-law and their baby niece? Ronald and Dan did not kill Brenda over money or an affair. This was not a crime of passion. Ronald Lafferty was insane, at least in a religious sense. He truly seemed to believe that he had received a vision from God telling him that Brenda and baby Erica needed to be removed. One of his many recent revelations, he and his brother Dan took his murderous message quite literally. Ron received this revelation after he joined a group, a group a lot of people classify as a cult called the School of the Prophets a modern-day revamp of a group established by the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith. The School of the Prophets allowed members of the LDS Church to gather together to discuss uh, theology and politics, but the main purpose of the school was to teach members how to receive and interpret messages from God. What could go wrong with opening up receiving heavenly revelations to all the members of your congregation? Of course, uh, so much. So many cults today, probably many no one in the general public even knows about yet, have formed directly because of this concept. The Lafferty's were devout Mormons, born and raised in the LDS faith. But recently, some of their beliefs had started to shift and become more extreme. 
In recent years, Dan, Ron, and some of the other Lafferty brothers had become LDS fundamentalists who departed from the mainstream LDS faith over their belief in polygamy, the total submission of women and children, radical personal revelations, and a literal interpretation of the Bible and other Mormon texts, including texts no longer recognized by the church advocating concepts such as blood atonement. Both Ron and Dan were both excommunicated from the church for their beliefs. Behind the scenes, the Lafferty's were engaging in a family dynamic that was becoming more and more toxic before the murders. The wives were displeased with their husband's new beliefs and support of polygamy, no surprise there, which went against the main teachings of the church. All the men were on board, also no surprise, and were down with following Dan's leadership except for Alan. When Alan tried to enforce new rules in their home, Brenda refused to submit to him, and then she encouraged the other wives to stand up for themselves as well. She started trying her best to keep Alan away from his brothers, hoping to save him from going down a dark path. When the brothers joined the modern-day school of the prophets, led by a Canadian man who called himself the Prophet Onias, they felt like they were going to change human history, that they were going to set the entire LDS church back on the right path, the true path. And here we go. The power of self-delusion. It is endlessly fascinating to watch how some people can so thoroughly convince themselves that they are so much more important than they really are. People like Ron and Dan Lafferty, pathetic losers masquerading as incredibly important prophets. Ron and Dan now began to develop an intense hatred for Brenda because she wouldn't let Alan join. She was in their way. She wouldn't submit. She was dividing their families and in their eyes, in open defiance of God's will. Glory be to Gilead. Soon after he joined the school of the prophets, Ron started to receive visions from God, instructing him on how he would fulfill God's purpose for the church. He claimed he was given divine instruction to eliminate those who had become obstacles. And Brenda sure was an obstacle. This week, we'll cover the history of the Lafferty clan and how these already conservative LDS members became extreme fundamentalists. We'll discuss their complex family dynamics, how the school of the prophets tied into the final prophecy that led to two horrific murders as we dig into the details of the fantastic book that first told this story under the banner of heaven and look further into old newspaper articles and other sources to share the unfiltered insanity of this particular case in another cult, cult, cult meets true crime. If you truly think that God is sharing special revelations with just you, then I truly think that you are batshit fucking crazy edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome or welcome back to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins. There sucks a lot. Good boy who consistently goes pee in the potty. A dude who hasn't even received a single revelation from God telling me I'm the chosen one or even some kind of like assistant or, you know, like uh, uh, errand runner for the chosen one. Not even like the chosen ones, like, you know, a janitor. And you are listening to Time Suck. No announcements at all today. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles. Glory be to Triple M. And let's fucking go. Quick little warning up top that I probably don't give enough in regards to religious-based topics. Uh, My condemnation of certain theological teachings and my lack of belief that a religious founder indeed is a true prophet or me thinking that, uh, you know, some of the core tenets of a faith can be frankly really terrible does not mean I think the average believer is terrible. Not at all. I am aware that for every person who leans into the most abusive, misogynistic, uh, et cetera, teachings of any particular religion, there are many, many other people who just like the basic tenets of God has a plan for me and loves me. My life has a special celestial purpose. My faith helps me become a better person. 
I love the way the church makes me feel. I love a sense of community. And this community has been especially good to me. So I shouldn't take it for granted that you know that's where I'm coming from. So, you know, I'll, I'll say it. There you, there you go. Uh, now that that warning has been given, holy shit, is this going to be a sacrilegious suck? Oh my heck. There are going to be a lot of uh, LDS and FLDS teachings I am going to definitely mock the fuck out of for finding them to be just utterly outrageous. Now let's begin. Starting off with a a very brief overview of the history of Mormonism and the main beliefs of the LDS Church before covering the full timeline of how the Lafferty brothers became fundamentalists who believed in polygamy and uh, religious extremism and how their family became a cult of sorts for sure, influenced by the school of the prophets and culminating in the murders of Brenda and Erica Lafferty. Mormonism uh, already been discussed here in the Suckverse in depth in episode 157, Mormonism, the good, the bad, and the FLDS, and episodes 341 and 342, the Kirtland cult killings and Jeffrey Lundgren, one of two. You remember that one? Do you want to get pooped on? Do you want to get pooped on? Prophet Jeffrey knows what you want and you want to get pooped on. Remember that little ditty? Come on. Gonna be a lot less poop in this tale. No skid mark equivalent this week. Uh, this episode also reminds me a lot of the Children of Thunder cult suck. Episode 189. Do you remember Glenn Helzer? His brother Justin? Well, they also uh, came out of the LDS faith with their own crazy, uh, you know, ideas based on their own personal revelations. Dan and Ron Lafferty remind me of them. LDS wayward sons who thought they should be the Mormon leaders. Also excommunicated for their insane revelations that led to murder. Uh, let's start with that overview now. The following section will just cover the basics of the history and beliefs of the LDS church so we can understand where the main players in the story were coming from when they made their strange decisions. You know, decisions based in definitely some uh, real, you know, historical church events. Uh, Keep in mind, if you're familiar with LDS beliefs, especially if you are LDS or were, some of this might sound incorrect. Uh, It's not. It's just that the theology of the LDS faith is ever evolving. Thanks to a belief in, you know, continual revelation, a modern prophecy that, you know, it can include proclamations making previous proclamations null and void. Uh, some bishops and stake presidents also more dismissive of the past than others. Some honestly don't even know about a lot of this. They've chosen not to dig because, you know, the church does not want them to. They've taken their concerns and put them on a shelf, so to speak, where they will remain unexamined. Quoting a nice, very brief synopsis of the LDS Church's beliefs uh, from History.com, Mormons are a religious group that embrace concepts of Christianity as well as revelations made by their founder, Joseph Smith. And obviously, there's there's so much more to it than that. Uh, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, based in Salt Lake City, Utah, has over 17 million members worldwide. Just crossed the 17 million member threshold. And the church now prefers that members not be called Mormons, as I've said in some previous episodes, but instead members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But that is, as I've mentioned before, way too many fucking words. So sorry, church officials, I'm going to go with Mormon. If you want to make, uh, you know, people take to some new terminology, well, you got to try something catchier. Get something closer to the two syllables of Mormon, not the 14 syllables of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's too many words. That's That's just some basic marketing. Be reasonable. It's too much of a gosh dang mouthful. My heck, does that not roll off the tongue? Heavens to Betsy. Uh, One denomination called the Community of Christ based in Independence, Missouri has around 250,000 members. That's the uh, congregation that uh, our our previous cult leader that came out of the FLDS 
Jeffrey Lundgren came out of that offshoot of uh, mainstream Mormonism. And we covered a branch, that branch, yeah, pretty well in that Lundgren and Skidmark two-parter. Uh, Mormonism established in 1830 with the publication of the Book of Mormon, written slash translated slash maybe completely pulled out of his ass by founder Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, born December 23rd, 1805 in Sharon, Vermont, breaking the following down into the very rough basics. Smith wrote that when he was 14, he received a vision from God instructing him not to join a church because they were all fucking it up. At the age of 17, 1823, Smith claimed that an angel named Moroni visited him and revealed that he was the chosen one to translate the Book of Mormon, a sacred text completed in the 5th century CE concerning events that began around the 6th century BCE. Book named after the father of Moroni, named Mormon. Angel Moroni told Joseph that the book contained information about an ancient group of people who used to live in the Americas. The Book of Mormon was uh, inscribed on golden plates that no one else ever saw that could be found near the city of Palmyra, New York. Smith said the golden plates were revealed to him September 22nd, 1823, but not able to retrieve them until 1827. Moroni would not let him find the plates until then for reasons that frankly are pretty nonsensical. A lot of revelations he and other later prophets have had don't make a lot of sense. Reason and faith, not always the best bunkmates. Uh, Smith also said he found the Urim and Thummim Uh, These supposed ancient magical gemstones, basically that allow a prophet to speak more clearly with God. In the Hebrew Bible, they were part of a breastplate worn by the high priest of Israel and the high priest used them to determine God's will in certain situations. And these magical stones allowed Joseph to read and translate his golden plates into English. Uh Uh-huh. It does crack me up when members of, uh, you know, certain other faiths mock Mormonism for having uh, beliefs that don't make sense. I will say from an outside perspective, Teachings and history of Mormonism, really not that much more crazy than old biblical teachings. Uh, there was stuff in all religion that if you just take emotion and a sense of I shouldn't mock this because I thus mock the Lord out of it, it, it does read as a bit insane. <laughs> I mean, magic rocks to talk to God. Okay, why not? Uh, the Book of Mormon was first translated and published in 1830 when Smith is now 24. Before then, only a very small handful of people knew about Smith and his supposed revelations. Uh, The way Smith's revelations roll out are, well, let's just say if someone today said that God spoke to him the way that God supposedly spoke to Smith in 1823, they would be considered no more sane than Dan or Ron Lafferty uh, from today's tale. Mormons now believe that the Book of Mormon confirms info found in the Bible. The book gives a history of ancient prophets who supposedly lived in the Americas, covering the time from roughly 1500 BCE to a little after 400 CE. According to the Book of Mormon, around 600 BCE, a group of Jewish people came to America in a boat way before Christopher Columbus or any Vikings to escape persecution in Jerusalem, led by Lehi, an ancient prophet. They divided into two groups, the Nephites and the Lamanites. These two groups fought each other and eventually the Nephites were defeated in 428 CE. Book of Mormon states that some of the indigenous people of the Americas are descended from the Lamanites and that Jesus appeared before them and preached to them after his crucifixion. Joseph Smith would claim that John the Baptist appeared to him while he was translating this book and told him to restore the church to spreading the true gospel. Smith founded the Church of Christ to find as an uh, ecclesiastical institution that differed from all other Christian churches at the time because it was led by a prophet and had another sacred text in addition to the Old and New Testaments. Members believed their church was a restoration of the church from the New Testament, which ended during the Great Apostasy, at the end of the uh, apostolic era, 
33 to 100 CE. Uh, the name Latter-day Saints references the saints from the early church in the New Testament. After 1830, Mormonism spread throughout the U.S. pretty quickly. Communities established in Missouri, Ohio, and Illinois, but the, re- but the religion was hated and feared by the majority of Christians in the U.S. And this is still true today. Uh, many do not consider Mormons to be Christian. A 2023 Pew Research poll, love the uh, Pew Research Foundation, found that roughly 25% of Americans have somewhat unfavorable views of Mormons. And a 2012 Pew poll found that 46% of Mormons do feel they face discrimination. In February of 1844, Smith and his brother were arrested for treason. June 27th of that year, they were murdered by an angry anti-Mormon mob while awaiting trial in a jail in Carthage, Illinois. Smith had previously been tarred and feathered. This was not his first rodeo with the law after being literally beaten unconscious by another angry mob in 1832. A lot of angry mobs were chasing Joseph Smith around for much of his life. And according to non-church history, Smith was far from an innocent man of God, vilified for no good reason. This man who died at the age of 38 was charged with approximately 30 criminal actions during his life and at least that many financial civil suits. And And this was back when it was harder to get caught for shit than it is now. Most of the charges in civil suits uh, revolved around him being a con man, running all sorts of different scams. At the age of 20, he was charged with being a disorderly person, described in court papers as being Joseph the Glass Looker. Now that references him claiming he could divine things like uh, where treasure was buried by looking into these, you know, these stones, these magical stones, which do have, you know, a theologic history and receiving supernatural guidance. You know, stones kind of like the Urim and the, the Thummim. And he would talk people into investing in his magical treasure hunts. And then they would get fucking pissed when, you know, he took their money, never found any treasure, and then didn't give the money back. Only real magic trick he seemed to be especially good at was making other people's money disappear. Uh, Or maybe also girls' hymens. More on that in a bit. Five years later, he was charged with the same con, accused of being a disorderly person and an imposter. He leaves New York for Ohio. In Ohio, he will be charged with assault, illegal banking, banking fraud, being an imposter. Conspiracy to commit murder, threatening a public official, treason, and more. He'll flee Ohio to avoid incarceration and makes it to Missouri, where he's charged with threatening a judge, treason, conspiracy to commit murder, and more. Flees to Illinois to, again, avoid incarceration. In Illinois, he's arrested for being a fugitive from justice, conspiracy to murder the governor, fornication, polygamy, inciting a riot, and more. When he's killed, he was awaiting trial for numerous serious charges. Allegations of him trying to fuck a a whole bunch of teen girls followed him everywhere he went. While LDS history paints him as a godly man, constantly fleeing violent, constant religious persecution, secular historians see him based on a a lot of court documents and other evidence as a perverted and incredibly unscrupulous con artist, all too happy to try and fuck your daughter or fleece your grandma when you weren't paying attention. And I'm not trying to be inflammatory here. I really am not. I tend to get along great with Mormons in general and Salt Lake City is truly one of my favorite places in the world. But I do try to be honest And those are the facts. Uh, Were early Mormons persecuted? Yes, they were actually. Some were murdered, right? Some of the persecution heinous, such as the Hans Mill Massacre of 1838, when 18 innocent, largely unarmed men, women, and children were just butchered. Many others wounded in Missouri by an anti-Mormon militia, all too happy to butcher them. However, Joseph Smith and his early followers also brought a lot of trouble on themselves by conning people and fucking teens they would take as additional wives. A lot of their actions, not endearing to locals who saw them not as godly, but as predatory. And I do think that the type of man Smith was has 
for sure influenced, if not encouraged, a lot of LDS offshoot cult leaders, right? FLDS cult leaders into behaving in terrible ways ever since. Just this attitude of like, well, I'm not doing anything that our founding prophet didn't also do. You know, and if he's holy, why can't I be holy and do the same thing? Dan and Ron Lafferty use that exact kind of rationalization. Just like many other cult leaders have rationalized terrible behavior as having biblical precedence. Before moving on to more LDS history after Smith's death, this feels like a, a decent spot for today's mid-roll break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. 
Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for sticking around, Meat Sacks. Much appreciated. Now let's hop back into more LDS history. The early church split after Smith was murdered. Many started to follow his successor, Brigham Young, who led a mass exodus out of Illinois. In 1847, Young and his followers settled in the Salt Lake Valley of Utah. Uh, During the 1850s, Young organized the movement of 16,000 Mormons from Illinois to Utah, founded Salt Lake City, served as the first governor of the Utah Territory. Uh, Young was named the president of the church and held that position until his death in 1877. The church hierarchy consisted, uh, well, consists, excuse me, of the president, two counselors, the quorum of the 12 apostles, the first quorum of the 70 stake presidencies, the ward uh, bisphoric individual members, or bishop, bishopric, there we go. Unusual word, bishopric, which is like like three members that you know comprise this uh, leadership of a particular war, uh, particular church. A stake is a group of church congregations, or I guess a, a, a place church with ward. Stake is a group of church congregations, typically around three thousand to five thousand people. Ward is a single church congregation led by a bishop, and a bishop has two helpers. Church is led by a president slash prophet who serves for the remainder of his life. Once appointed, Mormons consider the president to be prophet, seer, and revelator. Uh, Mormons believe that God uses prophets to direct the church and individual believers. They believe that prophets can receive revelation from God on both religious and practical issues. And I will say LDS belief concerning revelations is uh, particularly messy. And it does make the church a breeding ground for splinter groups and cults. Uh, I'll try and summarize it quickly. Only the president of the church can receive a revelation that guides the entire body of the church. However, lots of other members can receive revelations for themselves, their families, and their personal areas of authority within the church. For example, a stake president can receive a revelation for special guidance of their stake. Uh, Bishops can receive revelation for their guidance of their ward. Mormon priests, which is virtually every Mormon man, can receive a revelation for their family. Mormon women... Also, children can also receive revelations, but only for themselves. So there's this hierarchy where it's like uh, the president receives revelations for everyone. Regional leaders receive revelations for people below them. Uh, male heads of households receive you know, revelations for their families. Wives receive revelations for their children themselves. I should have said that earlier. Kids receive revelations for themselves. But 
you know, it's like all these revelations and kind of like this Russian nesting doll, they have to line up with the revelation above them in the hierarchy. So like as, as a wife, your revelation can't, you know, contradict your husband's revelation who can't predict his uh, contradict, excuse me, his bishop's revelation who can't contradict his stake president's revelation and all the way up the chain to the, the president. So can you see the obvious problem with this, right? What if, what if your revelation does go against the revelations of those above you in this theological hierarchy? You're opening your mind to feeling like God is sharing special insights with you that you can't control because it's, you know, it's God talking, not you. What are the odds that those are always going to line up with the revelations of everyone above you? Uh, current LDS teaching, they, they do try to, uh, you know, put a fence around this to contain it. They, there's a, a current teaching that says revelation from God does not contradict gospel principles or go contrary to established church policy and procedure. But again, it's, it's problematic to have that magically happen to work out all the time. So, you know, so if you think God through the Holy Spirit is telling you something, but then what they told you now contradicts LDS teaching or the revelations of those above you. Well, now you're taught to think that you weren't actually hearing the Lord. You were mistaken. What you heard were your own thoughts, possibly mental illness, or worst case, something related to to Satan in some way. Okay, fine. But what if you're a devout Mormon, raised to believe you can receive revelation? You think you've been told by God that the church is wrong, that leadership has been poisoned by Satan because they're fallible too, right? What What if they were given improper revelations and you're correct? What happens then is you're, you know, excommunicated and you form a splinter group, oftentimes a cult. And that's what happened in this story. Okay, back to church leadership for a second now. Uh, Current president is Russell M. Nelson, 99 years young. (laughs) We complain about our politicians being too old. Fucking Russ Dog makes Biden, Trump, McConnell, others look like spry young chickens. Russ named president back in 2018 when he was young, virile, 94. Just a baby, an infant really. Uh, The previous LDS president prophet, Thomas S. Monson, practically a preemie when appointed as God's most important man on earth, only 80 years old, and he ruled with a wrinkled liver-spotted fist till he was 90. Before him, another itty-bitty baby president, Gordon Hinckley. Uh, 15th president, uh, prophet, God guy, 1985 uh, is when he took over, hadn't quite turned 85. By the time his run was over, he was 1,000 years old or 97. Uh, Previous guy in his 80s when he led. Guy before that, 80s and 90s, took office in his late 70s, though. What the fuck? Why don't I just put a 12-year-old in charge? Anyways, you can see the church is always led by some very old dude. It is extremely patriarchal. Women cannot be leaders. And that comes into play today. Women do not have much of a voice in the LDS faith. It's said that they do, but I feel like they're given, like, token power, fake power. Uh, you know, they can, they can be advisors to leaders. But ultimately... In, in a true sense, they are very powerless. They are expected to obey, to submit even, at the end of the day, to men. Not that a mainstream believer necessarily does that. I doubt it happens often, actually. But, you know, if you're following everything by the book, you go along with what husband says. And husband goes along with what bishop says. And bishop goes along with what stake president says, and so on. Uh, because if there's one thing God hates, it's puss. Sorry, broads. Sorry, chicks. Maybe you'd be given a more say-so. If you didn't bleed some of your brains out of your devil hole every month, God's words, not mine. Loosely God's words. Uh, Let's now discuss some of the beliefs of the LDS church. LDS church lists their 13 most important beliefs in their articles of faith. Number one, we believe in God, the eternal father and in his son, Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost and in the Holy Ghost. 
2, we believe that men will be punished for their own sins, not for Adam's transgression. That's a difference uh, between Mormonism and, uh, you know, typical Christian beliefs. They, they do not believe that they're born inherently with sin. Uh, three, we believe that although the atonement of Christ, all that through the atonement of Christ, excuse me, all mankind, mankind, my God, may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Uh, four, we believe that puss is gross. I mean, we'll fuck it and stuff, but we're not gonna touch it with our mouths. <laughs> and we're probably not gonna sniff our fingers after we touch it. <laughs> Real number four. Uh, we believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospels are first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of the hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Five, we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. And that's just, you know, talking about their baptismal pro- of uh, uh, rituals that, you know, they have to properly bring you into their faith and go through certain rituals and you have to go through certain, make certain promises and such before you can, you know, uh, proclaim their, administer their faith to others. Uh, Six, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. Seven, we believe that puss is gross. Did we mention that already? We prefer to mostly surround ourselves with cock. All the leadership councils and quorums, et cetera, must be sausage fests. It'll make bathroom breaks more fun because we can sword fight. We'll be able to pay better attention to God and stuff because we won't constantly be distracted by titties, just barely hiding under sweaters and, and dresses and curvy uh, cushion first and pushing hips and whatnot. Bros before hoes, hate puss, praise God. Real number, <laughs> real number seven now. We believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation of tongues and so forth. Eight, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it has as far as it is translated correctly. Interesting that they write it that way. We also believe that the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. Number nine, we believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So that is their concept of, you know, continuous revelation. Ten, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and the restoration of the 10 tribes, that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent that Christ will reign personally upon the earth and that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisical glory. And this will be something latched onto by the uh, Lafferty brothers and many other co-leaders that they have to prepare this, you know, special uh, city, a kind of a compound for Christ's return, right? To await his, you know, coming back down to restore earth to its glory. Uh, 11, we claim the privilege of worshiping the almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege. Let them worship how, where, or what they may. Ah, I don't, okay. I don't know if they actually do that, but that's uh, there. Uh, 12, we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. That was not always in their core teachings. And, uh, you know, some fundamentalists have definitely latched on to that where it's like, no, that's not, it was always God's law above man's law. But now because of some problems in the past, they've, they've added this. And that is a big problem that the Lafferty's will run into is, you know, changing theology. And finally, the last one, uh, we believe the puss is gross. 99% sure we we already mentioned that. Feeling strong deja vu vibes right now. But for real, what is even going on down there? It's like a, it's like a living witch cauldron with all the, the the hair and the skin folds and the different juices, sweat, pee pee, uh, some kind of olive oil, slippery lube stuff, uh, some kind of cream cheese crumbles from time to time. I'm going to throw up. What is that? What What even the fuck is that? And it bleeds. 
How can we not hate all that? God hates it. We hate it. You should hate it too. Bros before hoes for eternity. Fuck puss forever. Gross. Praise God. Uh, real last one now. <laughs> I wish those. Were, I wish that was real so bad. Thirteen. We believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. Indeed, we may say that we follow the admonition of Paul. We believe all things. We hope all things. We have endured many things and hope to be able to endure all things. If there's anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. Okay, we're we're going to try and be good. Uh, One of the things that sets Mormons apart from the rest of Christianity is their belief in prophets, but not the only unique belief they have. Mormons believe that Adam and Eve lived in Davis County, Missouri. (laughs) After they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And, And look, I love Missouri. Uh, some of my, some of the best uh, bases of listeners for this show are in Missouri, right? Kansas City, St. Louis, two of the best turnouts I had for the Burn It All Down stand-up tour for Kansas City, Missouri. Had a blast in Springfield, Missouri, one of my favorite small cities in America. Lake of the Ozarks, gorgeous. But Eden-like? Sorry, Missouri, too many bugs. Too much humidity in the summer. Not enough mountains and raging rivers. Garden of Eden shouldn't make my balls sweat so much. Make my thighs chafe. I should be able to watch a sunset with a beautiful Rocky Mountain Vista, you know, in the background. Also, Mormons don't recognize the Holy Trinity as God existing in three forms. They believe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three separate entities. Uh, Mormons believe in a multi-tiered heaven, which I've always found fascinating. The celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. Those who inherit the celestial kingdom dwell in the presence of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. In the scriptures, the glory of the celestial kingdom compared to the glory of the Son. And the best members of the celestial kingdom, right? The elite of the elite, if they're dudes, can become gods themselves and be given their own universe to be master of, kind of like He-Man. Too much to go into today. Uh, but talk about a fucking ego stroke for dudes. Talk about playing into cult leader mentality, right? Uh, think about what, you know, being taught a, you can become a god can do for your psyche. What does that do to women, right? Better back your husband's play for he, he may become uh, your god someday. You can maybe kind of be a lesser deity as a woman, but still have to be subservient to your husband God. It's actually not explicitly made clear how high women can climb there. Uh, Why not? Well, maybe because God hates puss. Not sure. Uh, Maybe because all Mormon theology written by dudes and they've mostly thought about themselves. Middle level of Mormon heaven, the terrestrial kingdom. It's where people who are honorable and have lived virtuous lives go. They will be visited by Jesus, but not by heavenly father. The vice president will swing by, wave to you. But the head honcho, no, he's sticking in the VIP section. He's staying behind the velvet ropes. Uh, People at the bottom level of heaven, due to their refusal to accept Jesus as their savior, will be put in spiritual prison for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ. After their thousand years of getting, I don't know, sodomized in the showers by the sisters or shipped in the yard by the Aryan Brotherhood or whatever kind of shit goes down in spirit prisons, these individuals will be resurrected and receive an immortal physical body, body and be assigned to the celestial kingdom They don't get to see Jesus. They don't get to see Heavenly Father. They do get to see the Holy Ghost from time to time. Get taught lessons by him. Get to study up there in heaven. Uh, Life in the celestial kingdom also is supposed to still be better than life on earth. Almost no one goes to hell in LDS theology, which, you know, pretty dope. Few do, like the worst of the worst, the sons of perdition cast out into the outer darkness, i.e. hell. And some Mormon leaders have referred to a possibility that there are daughters of perdition as well, also, that is seriously not clear. <laughs> Women, not, not just bagging on LDS theology, they really don't get the same attention in scripture outside of being objects pretty much owned by men 
<laughs> that men do. Majority of people uh, do make it to one of heaven's levels. Now let me talk about some rules. Churches faced a lot of criticism over the years because of all the strict rules Mormons have to follow. Uh, Joseph Smith claimed he received a set of health guidelines from God in 1833, now known as the Word of Wisdom. Word of Wisdom states that Mormons should not drink coffee, tea, alcohol, use tobacco or illegal drugs, but not in those exact terms, but interpreted that way. Original document warned against drinking hot beverages. <laughs> Gotta be careful about those hot beverages, those hot toddies. Send you straight to the outer darkness. Uh, most Mormons now agree this only applies to hot caffeinated beverages. There's been a lot of confusion about what Mormons are allowed to uh, ingest, imbibe. The church also now allows members to decide for themselves if they want to drink cold caffeinated beverages. <laughs> like so. uh, when you get into the nitty gritty of these rules, it always cracks me up. Oh, I mean, yeah, of course you can have a, <laughs> of course you can have a soda. Uh, we own co- a lot of shares of Coca-Cola. Hot coffee? Ugh, that feels satany. One of the most infamous aspects of Mormonism and their rules, the practice of polygamy. The church did ban polygamy in 1890, but some fundamentalist Mormon men, people not part of the mainstream faith, uh, still have multiple wives. Church publicly acknowledged in 2014 that Joseph Smith himself had up to 40 wives, some of whom were as young as 14. Yikes. Add that to all the times he was charged with crimes for running scams, not paying people back for loans, etc. And it's, you know, it's not a good look. Uh, I think Mormons are scrutinized and criticized more than members of traditional Christian denominations and more than members of other old religions because of all the documentation we do have on their founders. Right at the end of the day, in a secular sense, we don't have a fucking clue who Jesus of Nazareth really was or Abraham or Moses. We don't know much about Muhammad. Some Islamic scholars actually continue to doubt Muhammad's existence. Uh, We don't know if Buddha was real or if ancient Hindu texts contain any actual historical people, but we do know who historical Joseph Smith was. And for non-Mormons, you know, he was a womanizing con man whose dirty deeds got him killed. Uh, There are Mormons and Mormon fundamentalists, as I've said, FLDS. Mainstream Mormons do not support the FLDS, are frankly very embarrassed by it. Do not consider them part of the church, but they also do behave more like the original members of the LDS than modern LDS members. Uh, FLDS, you know, do believe the same texts, believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. John Krakauer, author of the 2003 book, Under the Banner of Heaven, which covers the Lafferty brothers and the LDS church, wrote, they diverge on one especially inflammatory point of religious doctrine. Unlike their present day Mormon compatriots, Mormon fundamentalists passionately believe that saints have a divine obligation to take multiple wives, Followers of the FLDS faith engage in polygamy, they explain, as a matter of religious duty. At the time of the book's publication, there were over 30,000 FLDS polygamists in Canada, Mexico, and the Western U.S. Some think the number may now be as high as uh, around 100,000. Still, they make up less than 1% of LDS church membership. Uh, Krakauer wrote, The LDS leadership has worked very hard to persuade both the modern church membership and the American public that polygamy was a quaint, long-abandoned idiosyncrasy practiced by a mere handful of 19th-century Mormons. The religious literature handed out by the earnest young missionaries in Temple Square makes no mention of the fact that Joseph Smith, still the religion's focal personage, married at least 33 women, and probably as many as 48. So even more than 40. Uh, Polygamy canonized as section 132 of the Doctrines and Covenants, one of the primary texts of the LDS faith. Mostly a book of Smith's ongoing revelations after the Book of Mormon was published. In it, Joseph Smith described polygamy as part of the most holy and important doctrine ever revealed to man on earth. Again, uh, ugh, not looking great. Looking, looking like a walking boner. 
God may not, may not like puss, but Joey Poundtown, oh my heck, did that feller like to get his dick wet? Uh, he taught that a man needed at least three wives to achieve the fullness of exaltation in the afterlife. And some of the Lafferty boys will run with that very much. Smith wrote that God commanded all those who have this law revealed unto them must obey the same. And if ye abide not that covenant, then ye are damned. For no one can reject this covenant and be permitted to enter into my glory. Uh, many cur- current LDS members very familiar with their scripture don't know about that passage though, and others like it. Well, why not? Because they've been removed. No edition starting with the 1890 publications contain that anymore. Ongoing revelation, right, has allowed the church to revise their texts. And that has led to problems, to accusations from Mormon fundamentalists that LDS members are not real Mormons. They have ruined their own faith by allowing secular forces to change God's word, to change their religion. So why is polygamy no longer practice? Specifically because of U.S. government intervention. 1857, U.S. President James Buchanan sent the army in to invade Utah to dismantle the Mormon theocracy and to eradicate polygamy. This became known as the Utah War. This was a confrontation that lasted from May of 1857 to July of 1858. There were some casualties. Uh, most are were non-Mormon civilians. The war had no notable big military battles, though. Mormons never intended to get into it, uh, you know, militarily with the U.S. government. When they moved to the Great Salt Lake Valley of Utah, the land was still a uh, part of Mexico. Mexico had declared independence from Spain in 1821, taken over Spanish territory in the in the western in Western North America, and present-day Utah was not one of their territorial priorities. Brigham Young and others hoped to create their own nation in this place. But then the U.S. government acquired Utah territory in 1848. The Mormons were collectively like, shit, we were just getting Gilead up and running under his eye and all that. Uh, Having formed their own militia, they briefly thought they could fight the U.S. off, but, you know, they were wrong. Still, Brigham Young would remain in control of the church until 1877, and the practice of plural marriage continued following Buchanan's soldiers showing up. Decade following his death, though, in 1887, U.S. government now passes the Edmunds-Tucker Act, outlawing polygamy in stronger terms than before. It now punishes the act with fines of from $500 to $800, which was a lot of fucking money back then, and imprisonment of up to five years. It also disincorporated the LDS church, forfeited all church property worth more than $50,000 to the government if the government is found guilty of supporting polygamy. It replaces local, or it replaced local LDS judges with federally appointed judges. It was definitely a big, you will fucking come to heel. You will put our laws before your laws, motherfuckers. You actually don't get to run your shit show how you see fit. Then wouldn't you know it, three years later in 1890, under increasing right uh, litigious pressure, under legal pressure, uh, LDS President Wilford Woodruff receives another revelation from God and is told polygamy, not cool anymore. Suspicious timing does seem like the church capitulated to the will of Congress, right? Polygamy pretty much eradicated from the church, at least in open practice now. However, the church still has groups of Mormons sent to establish polygamous colonies in Mexico and in Canada, and higher-ranking LDS members continue the practice in secret. And the U.S. government knows about this. 14 years later, 1904, another decree. Now threatens polygamists, uh, you know, with, uh, excuse me, there's more pressure from the government, and the church responds with another decree that threatens polygamists with excommunication. Now really trying to clean up their public image with the world that is, you know, largely frowning on their polygamy and they're becoming known mostly for polygamy. LDS leaders in hopes to become more of a mainstream religion encourage the legal persecution of polygamists. This changes the public reputation of the church, makes it more respectable, uh, respectable. Oh my God, respectable. 
in the eyes of the general public. But fundamentalists believe that this rejection of polygamy was an unforgivable compromise. When I do see where they're coming from, right? That the leaders of the LDS church established themselves as false prophets, selling their souls to bow down to the U.S. government and do away with Smith's teachings. What's the point of even being a Mormon man now if you can't own a lot of pus? Come on! Now there's a rise of various fundamentalist sects who adhere to the true word of the original prophets. True believers, not cheap sellouts. And here we fucking go. Here is the rise of so many cult, cult, cults. Let's now briefly explain the origins of the school of prophets. Small group of Mormons who came together to discuss religion, other issues, backing up to December of 1832. This year, Joseph Smith receives a revelation. God spoke to him, as he often did. This time, God directed him to establish a special school for the elders of the church in Kirtland, Ohio, and they called themselves the School of the Prophets. According to BYU's website, the school was a place where men in the Church of Christ met to learn about spiritual and secular matters and to prepare for missionary work. Excuse me. Uh, Joseph Smith had visions and revelations during meetings. Of course he did. When he was, uh, you know, not going to pound town on one of his dozens of very young wives, he was talking to the sweet, sweet Lord. The meetings were held every winter from 1833 to 1836. Smith experienced visions, revelations. First session opened on January 22nd, 1833, and it included powerful manifestations of the Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues. The School of the Prophets also taught history, current events, reading and writing, math, and language. And then the Kirtland School came to an end in 1837. 30 years later, Brigham Young kicks it back up in Salt Lake City. They meet to discuss doctrine, theological questions, political, economic issues, so forth. According to BYU, some of the discussions involved non-church members in the community, relationships with indigenous people, uh, the transcontinental railroad, also discussed church movements, conflicts with the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a splinter group, and the government's super shitty laws against polygamy. Uncle Sam did not understand the bros before hoes message for some fucking reason. Uh, School shut down in 1874. Church president John Taylor reconvened it in 1883 but then ended again after just a couple of meetings. Other branches of the School of the Prophets established around the Utah Territory. Not records on all of them uh, that have remained. Uh, Then the church stopped using the title of the School of the Prophets altogether after the late 19th century. Mormons continued establishing other schools and academies in the West and beyond. Almost all of the Lafferty brothers will join a modern revival of the School of the Prophets, led by a beardo weirdo man uh, who called himself the Prophet Onias. In this group, real big on personal revelation. As we'll see in the timeline, they already held fundamentalist beliefs before they joined, but this group of bearded weirdos uh, fuels their belief that God has chosen them to lead the LDS church back to the way it was supposed to be. Time to make the U.S. government and its satanic laws heal before them. Or kneel, I guess. Or heal, heal behind them, kneel before them. One of those, either one's fine, really. Uh, one of the brothers began digging into old 19th century teachings. And that's when everything started to unravel. That's when he felt like he'd been lied to his whole childhood and young adult life. And now he's finding the truth. That's when some of the sins of Mormonism's past set the Lafferty boys down a terrible path in the present. Uh, they won't be the, the last to do that either, right? There are just too many old published revelations. And if you're very curious about your faith and you start digging into that and you're maybe not the most emotionally stable meat sack, chaos will probably ensue and has, is right now, I'm sure in many little corners of the world. Uh, let us now jump into a timeline of the Lafferty family and the tragic murders that sadly put their name in the national spotlight. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. 
the Lafferty Bros, born in the 1940s and 50s. John Krakauer wrote about the family. The Lafferty's surname had a certain prominence in the county, even before Brenda and Erica Lafferty were killed. Some sources have referred to them as the Kennedys of Utah County. Watson Lafferty Sr., the family patriarch, was a well-known chiropractor who ran his practice out of his home in downtown Provo, Utah. Watson and his wife, Claudine, had six boys and two girls. The boys were Ronald, the oldest, Dan, Mark, Tim, Watson Jr., and Alan, the youngest. Uh, I feel like I didn't add one, two, three, four. Okay, I thought that was five, not six. It's six. Uh, The girls were named, Why Couldn't You Have Also Been a Boy? And, oh, great, another plus. Or they were named Colleen and Kathleen. Uh, Throughout the timeline, our main Lafferty subjects will be Ron, Dan, and Alan. According to Krakauer, Watson Sr. and Claudine instilled an unusually strong work ethic and intense devotion to the Mormon church and all their children. The Lafferty clan grew up on a farm west of Salem, Utah. Salem, a little town about 13 miles south of Provo, 57 miles south of Salt Lake City. Watson Lafferty was a veteran who worked as a barber on an aircraft carrier in World War II. After his service ended, he attended chiropractic college under the GI Bill. He then opened a chiropractic practice, a barbershop, and a beauty salon in a little room of his house. He and Claudine, particularly devout Mormons, according to Krakauer, Watson Lafferty spent a lot of time thinking about God. He also spent a lot of time thinking about the government and the relationship the former should properly have with the latter. Even in arch-conservative, ultra-Mormon Utah County, the hard rightward lean of Watson's political views, as well as his extreme piety, caused the Lafferty patriarch to stand out. This will fuck his boys over. He was very much like, I don't think the government should be telling our church what to do. And that attitude will rear its head in some pretty gross ways with his kids. And I do understand, you know, not being a big fan of like the government telling us what to do. So I, I feel for him there, but ah, the way he taught it to his kids, not, not great, man. Uh, Dan Lafferty would describe his father as strong-willed and a very individual individual. Describe mom Claudine as a submissive wife and an excellent mother. However, uh, I don't know that I would describe uh, Watson as uh, how he was described. Well, I guess strong-willed. Uh, Watson was physically abusive to his wife and children, often hit Claudine in front of the kids and would, according to Dan, beat the living tar out of his family. Very much a spare the rod, spoil the child mentality. And also Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Or you get your ass smited. Uh, Watson also beat a family dog once to death with a fucking baseball bat to teach his kids a lesson. Beat the dog to death in front of his kids. Right? They weren't doing their chores correctly, paying too much attention to the dog. So that's what happens to the dog. Don't put the needs of a lowly dog in front of the needs of your father, family, household, and Lord. So Watson was a patriarchal zealot. Watson Sr. also harbored a strong distrust of modern medicine. When his oldest daughter, Colleen, suffered acute appendicitis as a young girl, uh, Watson thought she should be treated only with prayer and homeopathic remedies. Only after her appendix burst and she was on the verge of fucking death that he barely allowed her to go to the hospital. He was was a great dad. Uh, Watson would die an avoidable death himself in 1983 at the age of 68 after refusing proper treatment for advanced diabetes. And you know what? After learning about his brood, Good riddance. Uh, Despite growing up in an abusive household, Dan Lafferty loved his father and admired him. Krakauer quoted him as saying, I was blessed to be raised in a very special and happy family. We never wanted for anything. My parents truly loved and cared for each other. It wasn't unusual to hear my father ask my mother if he had told her lately that he loved her. Also wasn't usual for him to beat the shit out of her though. Yeah, Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Sometimes you get a kiss and a tender word. Uh, Sometimes you get the back of a hand and some rage. Lafferty's main priorities were family and church and doing what fucking daddy tells you. But they were not fundamentalists. 
Dan grew up to become like his parents, devout mainstream Mormon. He said, I was a hundred and I was a hundred and ten percenter. I sang in the choir. I always paid my tithing. In fact, I always paid a little extra just to make sure I made it to the highest kingdom of glory. I want to be exalted. Celestial kingdom. Here I come. Let's fucking go. Break out some of that spirit puss, that old space ghost puss. That's good stuff for those uh, of us who have been exalted. Uh, after graduating from Payson High School in 1966, Dan completes his two-year mission to Scotland. Oh, hell yeah. Actually, that sounds like a great place to, to go on a mission. I would love to revisit Edinburgh, spend some time there. Meets a woman named Matilda Loomis, divorced mother of two girls. They re- reconnect six years later at a missionary reunion. Dan, at the age of either 26 or 27 now, felt like he was getting kind of old, and his dad and brother Ron were, were getting on him to get married. When he saw Matilda again, he thought he should pray about marrying her before she went home. He claimed he received a positive answer and told Matilda they should get married. Anybody else wonder if that positive answer he received was a boner that could cut diamonds? Did God answer him or did nature call? Uh, Dan later recalled, I thought it was going to be really awkward trying to explain that God intended her to be my wife and I was worried how she would react. So I was kind of thrown off when she answered, yeah, I know. I said, what do you mean I know? She explained that God had told her to come to America just for that reason, to get married. She said she was expecting me to ask her. Totally. Lots of personal revelations. What a fun way to make your most important decisions. Uh, They got married within three months, moved to California with Matilda's girls. Dan enrolled in the Los Angeles College of Chiropractic to follow his father's footsteps. Spent five years in California. And towards the end of their time there, they heard a member of their local ward speak about plural marriage. Uh Uh-oh. Speaker asked everyone who came from a polygamous background to raise their hand. Dan saw that only four people didn't raise their hands. This made him curious, right? I.e. again, gave him a boner, got his mind racing, thinking about how much sex he could have. And he decided to learn more about polygamy. After Dan finished school, the family moved back to Utah to work for his dad. By this point, his parents were living in downtown Provo. His dad was running that chiropractic practice out of that, out of his home, you know, the extra room in the basement. Now, uh, Dan, 32 years old, continues researching polygamy. I bet he probably had to beat off quite a bit so he could really focus on his teachings. In the special collections of the BYU Library in Provo, he found a 51-page typescript of a 19th century tract on plural marriage. And this tract was titled An Extract from a manuscript entitled The Peacemaker or The Doctrines of the Millennium, being a treatise on religion and jurisprudence or a new system of religion and politics written by Udney Hay Jacob, published in 1842 in Nauvoo, Illinois, printed by Joseph Smith. The printed by Joseph Smith label caught Dan's attention. The peacemaker text claimed that polygamy was the primary solution for the problems that plague humanity, as in all of them. That polygamy would ensure that women were subservient as God intended and life would be great. God, it sounds nice. You know, my main complaint about my wife, Lindsay, is not fucking subservient enough. It'd be so great if I finally had some fucking subservience around the house in the form of a dozen or so wives, very horny wives, who listen to every word I say and never question my patriarchal God-given authority. Actually, the thought of that kind of creeps me out. I feel like I'd turn into a, a true monster in that role. I think anyone would. I don't, I don't think that's good for somebody's ego to, be, to have it stroke quite that much. Uh, the following are some quotes from the, but I'm still going to talk to Lindsay about her, you know, lack of submission, about her lack of subservience. <sighs> uh, the following are some quotes from the text that Dan found. The government of the wife is therefore placed in the husband by the law of God, for he is the head. Mm-hmm. 
I suffer not a woman, saith the Lord, to teach or to usurp authority. I think she's in the next room. Or to usurp authority over a man, but to be in subjection. Okay, I'm loving this so far. Here, the wife is pronounced the husband's property as much so as his manservant, his maidservant, his ox or his horse. (laughs) Oh, fuck yeah, bro. It's good shit. It's good shit. It is evident that by abandoning the sacred principle of plural marriage, an endless catalog of crime has been created that otherwise could never have existed. That's that's my angle, stopping crime. That's how I'm gonna approach Lindsay with all this. Listen, hey, listen, it's your call. Do you wanna live in a world full of crime? Do you wanna watch more innocent people suffer? Or do you wanna help me? And maybe also help film me, I don't know, fucking Janet, Brianna, Maria, uh, Leilani, uh, Ling, Kim, Mercedes. Ah, what is it? Crime and suffering? Or sharing our bed with some hot brats. Some chicks who know their place. (laughs) My God. Uh, Scholars have speculated that Joseph Smith actually wrote the book because one passage states, the question is not now to be debated whether these things are so, neither is it a question of much importance who wrote this book. (laughs) Wink, wink. Dan now wanted to know if Joseph Smith truly did write the book. He studied the text, prayed, eventually came to the decision that Smith was indeed the true author. And thus everything it entailed was holy and true. Because he believed Smith wrote the book, Dan was especially receptive to the ideas expounded in his pages. He now decided to become an LDS fundamentalist. And of course, as godly head of the household, enforced this lifestyle on Matilda, her two daughters, and their five children. Matilda, Matilda uh, no longer allowed to drive, handle money, speak to anyone outside her family without Dan's expressed uh, you know, consent. Uh, She had to wear a long flowing dress at all times. The kids were all taken out of school, no longer allowed to play with their friends. Oh, praise God, this is so righteous. Everyone does what he says, as opposed to my heathen ding-dong brood who don't even laugh at my jokes anymore. My devil spawn don't feel the need to get my explicit approval for a lot of decisions and opinions. Man, my fucking kids suck, and so does my wife. This other Dan gets it. He's living the good life now. Uh, Dan forbade the family from receiving medical treatment. He would treat them himself through prayer, fasting, and herbal remedies. So that's great. He's saving a lot of money. No more expensive doctor visit shit, right? This is also righteous. Family starts to grow slash raise their own food, scavenge the rest from dumpsters, saving on grocery bills now. Very smart. Dan turns off their gas and electricity. Only allows them to read LDS books and magazines. Saving on utilities and library fees now. Making so many righteous power moves. Even gets rid of their watches and clocks because he believed they should keep time by the spirit. Gah! Saving so much money on expensive uh, uh, watch batteries now. And, you know, clock repairs and such. It must be nice. Me? <laughs> Fucking drowning in clock bills right now. Now, if Matilda disobeyed Dan, he would spank her. And he would often do this in front of his mother, brothers, and their children as God intended. Don't tell anyone this, but um, my wife, Lindsay, is such a devilish woman. She only wants to be spanked in private. Blech! And watch she's naked. Shameful. I need to start spanking her bottom in front of my mom. Like this Dan. Like this much cooler Dan, my new Dan mentor. Uh, Dan threatened that if Matilda seriously disobeyed him, uh, she would be forced out of the marriage, would not get custody of the children because they were his property. Also told Matilda about his intentions to marry a second wife. Uh, she didn't love to hear that. Dan now seeking out other Mormon texts that supported plural marriage. During his research, he learns about the concept of blood atonement preached by Joseph Smith and Brigham Young at one time. According to Brigham Young, uh, blood atonement was a way to rectify grievous acts committed against Mormons, which can only be done if sinners have their blood spilt upon the ground. More old LDS teachings once thought of as coming directly from God, but now no longer taught. 
right? Superseded by newer revelations. Um, Additionally, Joseph Smith taught that the laws of God take precedence over the laws of men. So who cares if any of this is illegal? Man's laws don't fucking matter. God, I wish IRS agents understood that. Uh, Dan had now developed a strong dislike for the laws of man. Excuse me. Especially after one particular incident with his local government. While Dan was studying to become a chiropractor in California, he made a little extra money selling sandwiches, you know, that were made in the house by Matilda and the kids. Uh, but then the board of health shut him down because he didn't have a, a license, didn't have a permit, and wasn't paying taxes on that money. What the fuck? What? What? You can't just open up a restaurant in your home, start selling food? You, you can't make sandwiches on the same counter that your cat walks all over? Actually, I do hate government involvement in a lot of business licensing, but also get it because too many people are idiots who would end up getting a lot of other people sick if there was no oversight. Fucking dummies, ruin it for the rest of us. Uh, at the time, their living room deli or whatever was shut down. Matilda had just had a baby. Now the family's losing their main source of income when they really need it. It's hard. Dan would later say, after they shut me down, I didn't quite know what to do. It didn't seem right to me that the government would penalize me just for being ambitious and trying to support my family. That it would actually force me to go on welfare instead of simply letting me run my little business. I mean, I do empathize with him somewhat. It seems so stupid. The worst kind of government intrusion. In the Book of Mormon, Moroni talks about how all of us have an obligation to make sure we have a good and just government. And when I read that, it really got me going. Really got my examples going. It made me realize that I needed to start getting involved in political issues. And I saw that when it comes right down to it, you can't really separate political issues from religious issues. They're all tied up together. I mean, he's not wrong there. And again, on some level, I share his frustration because I personally hate the government making it harder to run a business than it feels like it, it needs to be, oftentimes. Uh, my knee-jerk reaction is, well, if someone's making cat poop infected sandwiches at home and selling them, uh, let some bad reviews put them out of business instead of the government. But my reaction after a bit more reflection is, well, actually, I, I would rather not worry about eating cat poop sandwiches. Uh, I do kind of like, you know, someone swinging swing by from time to time just to make sure that things are somewhat clean and stuff. Some oversight seems good as much as it pains me to say that. Uh, 1981, the church sends Watson Sr. and one of the brothers on another two-year mission. Bad timing, Dan, his little brother, Mark, who had also graduated from the Los Angeles College of Chiropractic, now take over their father's practice. Specifically, Dan, now 33 years old, put in charge of the family, named by dad, by Watson Sr. to be the family's patriarch while he's on another mission. He is to look over the Lafferty brood until he returns with his wisdom. He and Mark spend a lot of their free time now discussing religion and the evils of society, which they think are caused by the government primarily. Dan notices that when he and Mark are having these discussions, the other brothers start to show up and join in quite a bit. Except for fucking Ron. Oldest brother Ron, only one who won't attend. Dan was normally the leader, often talked about how the government had exceeded his constitutional powers. He believed citizens should not have to get licenses or pay taxes or have a social security number. Oh, fuck yeah. I often have this fantasy myself. But then the fantasy is ruined when I start to think about stuff like, yeah, but if we all stop paying taxes, who's going to keep the roads from becoming pothole obstacle courses? Uh, who's going to run the schools? I don't want to homeschool fucking anyone. How are we going to pay for the police, a military? I still think our tax system could use a massive overhaul. Still a, not a fan of the IRS, but also get the basic premise of why, you know, some form of government is needed. Uh, Dan believed that a license was simply an agreement with the government to let them have control of your life. And he said, and I decided I didn't want them to have control of my life. I already had a basic right to enjoy all the basic activities of a human being without their permission. Unfortunately, <laughs> the government didn't agree, you know, uh, didn't agree with what he was about to do here. Dan now thought that the LDS church went in the wrong direction in 1890 when President Wilford Woodruff ended plural marriage due to government pressure. 
He felt that he needed to adhere to the true commandments. He adopts a literal interpretation of the church's early texts, as well as a literal interpretation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. He calls all this a a quest to find the truth, and it leads him to sending his driver's license back to the state, revoking his marriage license, returning his social security card and more. He stops paying taxes, including sales tax somehow when we can help it. Uh, Even stops following the speed limit. Take that, government! Despite hating laws, not following a lot of them, and he, then, he then decides to run for sheriff of Utah County in the summer of 1982, which doesn't seem on the surface like a good idea for a guy trying to live off the grid, right? If you're trying to like not fucking interact with the government in any way, I don't know, maybe you don't want to work for the government. Uh, he promises to enforce laws based on a literal interpretation of the Constitution if, if he's uh, voted in. He thinks he can break a lot of laws as sheriff because he'll be above the law, even though that's definitely uh, not how that works. Meanwhile at home, Dan continues to practice religious extremism and push the idea of plural marriage. And this is pretty gross. He proposes to Matilda's oldest daughter, his stepdaughter, who is 14. Not too young for Joseph. Not too young for him. That is how he rationalizes it. Uh, Strongly assuming he is now molesting her, even though, you know, he was never charged with that and there aren't open allegations about that. But, ah, seems likely. Matilda will later testify, I had to come to a place, I had come to a place where there was no choices. I could either go and leave my kids or stay and accept it. She said she, excuse me. She said she started to dream of Dan dying now. So she would be free from their marriage and a life she described as a hellish situation. Dan, over all of this shit, uh, ends up getting excommunicated from the LDS church. uh, Mostly over trying to marry his stepdaughter. Although Dan will later say he was excommunicated for no different reasons. Dan said he ultimately changed his mind about marrying his stepdaughter or she just wasn't fucking down with it and ran away. And then he marries a Romanian immigrant named Anne Randak instead. Wife number two. To avoid more legal trouble, you know, they don't legally get married. It's a spiritual consummation. Her age never listed in sources. Uh, Anne uh, took care of actor and filmmaker Robert Redford's horses on his ranch in Spanish Fort Canyon. I love that there's a random Robert Redford connection here. Two met when Dan borrowed a horse for a local parade, part of his campaign efforts. According to Dan, Anne was not a member of the LDS church, but was open to new experiences. And plural marriage was her idea. Was it? I mean, I guess maybe it was. Uh, ironically, now Dan gets into serious trouble with the law in the middle of a campaign to be the Utah County Sheriff. <laughs> On October 4th, 1982, Dan is driving home after meeting with another candidate. He's fucking speeding because, you know, laws don't apply to him. And he gets pulled over by a Utah State Trooper. And he doesn't have a vehicle inspection sticker. And doesn't have a fucking driver's license. Oh, boy. And he, <laughs> he claims... He claims later that he had previous confrontations with this officer, that he was, all, he was out to get him. It was a trap, you know, to, uh, to get a felony pinned on him so he couldn't run for office anymore. Dan had recently published an article, about, which actually is not true. You could still run for office with a felon, uh, felony at that time. Dan had recently published an article about the government issuing improper arrest warrants, how it was unconstitutional to stop people on the freeway to arrest them. State trooper mentioned that he had read that article when asked. Dan told him, well, if you've read the article, you understand why you can't arrest me right now. If you want to arrest me, Go get a warrant from a judge. Bring it to my home. I'll conform to the proper procedures. Uh, At this point, Dan had his doors locked, had the window rolled almost all the way up, just talking to the officer through a little crack. He's, you know, ordered to get out of the car. He's like, nope. A confrontation ensues. The officer pulls down the window and then reaches in, tries to pull him out of the car. (laughs) Dan speeds off. And then, you know, they chase him and arrest him. And of course he was, you know, chased down. Uh, how do you think he's going to get away with that? Just speed now. He's a fucking known personality running a very public campaign to be sheriff. This guy was a dipshit. 
He receives five charges, <laughs> including second-degree felony escape, third-degree felony assault by a prisoner and evading an officer. He acts as his own attorney, of course, in his defense and presents a constitutional argument, uh, but is told that the Utah courts are not hearing constitutional matters in this case, right? The judge finds Dan in contempt of court because of his argument about that. Then his brothers and some supporters riot in the courtroom and attempt to citizens arrest the judge, prosecutor, and the clerk. These people are fucking insane. I mean, I get the sentiment. I get the urge to want to do shit like this. Oh, I fucking think crazy stuff all the time. You know, that stuff I shouldn't even say here because I don't want to incriminate myself about people I want to fucking murder, you know, for doing stupid things or whatever. Uh, but you know, this shit doesn't fly in this country. You know, if you want, if you want to get millions on your side and have a true revolution, then yeah, maybe you can change some stuff. But you know, if not, uh, yeah, you're gonna have to follow the laws, whether you like them or not, uh, or be punished by them. Dan ended up undergoing a 45 day psychiatric evaluation court ordered, <laughs> and he'll serve 30 days in the county jail. Krakauer wrote his stay behind bars only hardened his resolve. As a matter of principle, he stopped paying the property taxes on his father's home and business now. Just fucking doubling down. I'm being an idiot. Nope. I don't care. Put me in jail. I'm not going to follow your laws. Uh, It won't work out for him this time either. Dan is soon informed that the county is going to seize his family's property for non-payment of taxes. Uh, Watson Sr. is still out of the country on his mission. He hears about this happening and is understandably fucking furious. And he comes home, accuses Dan of hypnotizing his younger brothers, trying to hypnotize him and Claudine. And he's able to kind of sort shit out and keep his, uh, you know, property. This is a turning point in family relations. Several Lafferty brothers now start to meet regularly to discuss polygamy and other concepts from the Peacemaker, right? The LDS track that Dan has uncovered. Dan is now in charge of the family, whether his dad wants him to be or not. Three of the brothers soon try to bring polygamy into their own homes, do face quite a bit of opposition from their wives. One of them, Ron Lafferty. Let's really meet him now. He is seven years older than Dan, born in 1941. Growing up, he was a popular kid. Ron did okay academically, excelled athletically. Star football player, captain of the wrestling team. After high school, he served in the army, then went on a two-year mission for his church, sent to both Georgia and Florida. Part of his dedication to the church, Ron promised not to drink, smoke, use illegal drugs, drink caffeine, masturbate, have premarital sex, or to read anything other than LDS literature. He was prohibited also from watching movies or TV uh, or even from reading the newspaper. And all of this is so dumb. What, uh, all these repressive rules. What a great way to make your kid a fucking weirdo. Mess their lives up. Ron mostly followed the rules, but, you know, rebelled sometimes uh, by doing, you know, outlandish stuff like refusing to wear the hat and coat required for Mormon missionaries at that time. (laughs) Really? Really gambling. Really gambling with the salvation there. Uh, Ron would get up each uh, morning early, put on the slacks, white t-shirt and tie common for Mormon missionaries. Then would go out to do his daily missionary work. Krakauer wrote, like all LDS missionaries, to accomplish the latter, he had to endure insults, threats of physical violence. Flying spit, callous rejection. Typically, he would have a door slammed in his face 40 or 50 times a day. Ron, however, turned out to be astonishingly good at this line of work. Nothing fazed him. Uh, He would baptize over 50 people in two years, which was very good. For comparison, dedicated missionaries this time would typically only convert three to four people a year. During his mission work in Florida, he also met a nursing student named Diana. They will get married at the end of his mission and return to Utah and live in the city of Highland. Highland's a town in between Provo and Salt Lake City. Ron got a job driving heavy equipment uh, or doing heavy equipment operations, excuse me, for a local construction company. He remained close with his family, described as the emotional anchor for his siblings. Ron provided counseling and emotional support and would mediate disagreements. 
One sibling called him a mother hen type. Uh, he became active in his local government. He would serve on the Highland, Utah uh, First City Council in 1977, successful in getting beer sales banned from the only grocery store in town. So what a win. I'm sure that made him very popular with the locals. Yay, Ron made it harder for all of us to get, buy beer. Maserati Bugatti Spaghetti, Maserati Bugatti Spaghetti, Maserati Bugatti Spaghetti, Luigi Pizza Pie. Come on. Also appointed first counselor to his local bishop and led youth activities with his church. 1982, Ron was still on the Highland City Council and a prominent member of his local congregation. He and Diana now had six kids, many envious of their strong marriage, but life behind the scenes not as perfect as it seemed publicly. Ron was deeply emotionally affected by growing up in an abusive household, more so than his other siblings because he was especially close with his mother, his mother's favorite. She doted on him. Uh, Richard Dick Wooten, psychologist who worked with Ron for years after his arrest, would say, Seeing his mother hit by his father and being so mad that he wished he could have been big enough to have kicked his father's ass, I think that stayed with him. And it became a pattern by which he kind of handled difficult, mistrustful situations. Ron had been watching Dan's transformation into a fundamentalist and saw the influence he had over the other brothers. The other brothers' wives would turn to Diana for help, so he knew all too well what was happening to his family. In August of 1982, Diana convinced Ron that she should... You know, uh, or I'm sorry, Diana told Ron that she could tell some of the brothers' wives were miserable miserable because of Dan's fundamentalist influence. And then she convinced Ron to go speak to Dan to straighten them all out. Ron agreed. One evening, five of the brothers met at their parents' home for their new regular religious discussions. Now Ron joins them for the very first time. He reads an essay published by the church which spoke about the evils of fundamentalism. And he urged, right, these uh, brothers to obey their church president. Ron questioned Dan about his beliefs, tried to tell the other brothers that their souls were in jeopardy. Dan will later recall, Ron was embarrassed by me. He was a devout saint, and he said I was an embarrassment to the Mormon church. Dan insisted that the church had gone wrong when it prohibited polygamy. And the only way to steer things back in the right direction would be to follow the practices described in texts like the peacemaker. Ron and Dan get into this intense religious debate. They go back and forth, quoting the Bible, quoting the Book of Mormon. And then later, according to Dan, Ron eventually conceded and said, what you guys are doing is right. It's everyone else who's wrong. In a single meeting, Dan converts Ron. Diana later tells a friend that when Ron returned home that night, a totally different man walked in the door. How fucking terrifying. I mean, awesome for Ron to finally get it. Oh, mentor Dan, how great is he? He's, you know what? He sticks to his guns. He tells it like it is. He knows that the truth will prevail. And the truth is we men we men are born to rule. Sorry, broads. Any silly gals who don't do whatever the fuck we tell them are of the devil. Case closed. Take your Satan puss and beat it. It's that simple. Keep going, Mentor Dan. We're all rooting for you. All of us who recognize wisdom. Uh, Ron now started attending all the meetings with his brothers. He also threw out his driver's license. <laughs> fucking love that. Uh-uh. <laughs> he takes off his license plates. That's going to that's gonna work out well. Also quits his job despite his family's precarious financial situation. Uh, Ron had been working back when he was a dumb sheep on a four-unit apartment complex he financed with a bank loan. And he spent his evenings working on either that project or building his family's dream home in Highland. Now, frick all that doohickey. Now he mostly talks uh, scripture with his bros, right? Bros before hose bros. Fuck selling houses. Let's get out there and get some bonus puss. Prepare for God's kingdom. Uh, Ron and Diana were soon unable to make their loan payments and they couldn't afford groceries or clothing. 
And now for some reason, Ron starts to, uh, you know, break down under all the stress of this. Diana tells her friend that Ron would cry often and said, we sacrificed too much. I can't bear losing it all. So glad this is not my life. Diana asked Ron to straighten out his brothers again in the middle of this financial crisis. Seems like a bad idea. Asking Ron to talk to Dan really backfired, you know, the first time. This time, Dan makes Ron believe that God didn't want Ron and Diana to have maternal things. No, God wanted Ron to be a missionary for his teachings. His financial freefall was a good thing. Dan even so, uh, somehow convinced Ron that he would become the next president of the LDS church and that Dan would be his first counselor and the other brothers would be their second counselors. So yeah, the second talk uh, also backfires. Ron now starts to try to force Diana to follow the fucking rules. Listen in the peacemaker. Enough of the bullshit. Enough of the back talk. Diana's friend, Penelope Weiss, said that Diana then tried to save Ron from his brother. She stayed up all night trying to talk him into convince, you know, to change, uh, try to comply with some of the new demands. But there were many things that she refused, like letting him take additional wives. Diana now loses hope that things will go back to the way they used to be, especially when Ron announces that he's going to marry off their daughters as plural wives for other uh, fundamentalists. Yikes. Uh, Diana turns to others for help. And one of those people is Brenda Lafferty, wife of the youngest brother, Alan. Brenda was the only Lafferty wife who absolutely refused to submit to any part of this new bullshit fundamentalist belief system. She was clearly an evil person in league with the devil. Uh, Brenda born July 19th, 1960 in Logan, Utah, second of six daughters and one son to parents, Larray and James Wright, devout Mormons, but not fundamentalists, actually very progressive for LDS members this time. Brenda's family had lived in Idaho through most of her childhood. At one point, the family moved to New York so her dad could study at Cornell. Then they came back when he was done. Uh, Brenda was a beautiful young woman, competed in beauty pageants, won Miss Twin Falls, first runner-up in the Miss Idaho pageant. She attended the University of Idaho, Moscow, uh, and the College of Southern Idaho. She then attended BYU, working towards a BA in communications, wanted to be a news anchor, uh, Was uh, had a good shot at it. BYU, she anchored a campus television news magazine program for KBYU, a PBS affiliate. Her father later told the Daily Herald of Provo, Utah, that Brenda was a good, solid member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but not the fundamentalist type. According to her dad, uh, Brenda and Alan met in July of 1981 when she was a student, or I'm sorry, at a student ward at BYU. He was a student at Utah Technical College at that time. Alan went on to become a self-employed construction worker specializing in tiling and Brenda's parents thought he was a good young man. Brenda and Alan were sealed in the temple April 22nd, 1982, the day before she graduated college. Uh, And then Alan didn't want Brenda to work. So she gives up on her dreams. He talks her out of her dreams of being a news anchor. She gets a job at a mall so she could, you know, have some insurance and help out financially. Uh, But then Alan wants her to be more traditional than that. So he pressured her to quit that job. Brenda's family later learns that she was offered a teaching job at BYU. Alan uh, wouldn't let her take that. Her journals later revealed that she soon started to regret marrying Alan. She stayed with him only because she got pregnant with her only child, Erica Lane, born April 28, 1983. Brenda learned early into her relationship with Alan that he had some strong Lafferty beliefs about the government. He paid cash for everything because he didn't believe in checking accounts. He didn't want the IRS to trace his income. Also didn't want to have a social security card. That's a big red flag. If you meet somebody... <laughs> who, you know, always, always is, uh, you know, won't have a bank account because they're worried about the IRS and, uh, you know, are trying to get out of their social security card. Yeah, you probably want to run the other way. Again, I get the sentiment, but it mm, doesn't have a history of working out well. 
Uh, and this is all Dan's influence, actually, not his parents. Well, mostly Dan's. Dad was a little bit against the government too. Uh, when it was the first time their taxes were due as a couple, Alan told Brenda he was not paying and she had to get her dad to help them pay their taxes, which is fucking embarrassing. Uh, but they now regretted this dude marrying their daughter very much. Alan also wouldn't let Brenda renew their car registration. Then when little Erica got sick, he tried to keep her uh, from taking the baby to the doctor. While Alan was not interested in polygamy, he was influenced by Ron and Dan's new belief system. But Brenda refused to change her beliefs for him. Brenda's mother, Lorraine, uh, would later say, Brenda stood up to those Lafferty boys. She was probably the youngest of the wives, but she was the strong one. She told the other wives to stand up for their rights and to think for themselves. And she set an example by refusing to go along with Alan's demands. She told him in no uncertain terms that she didn't want him doing things with his brothers. And the brothers blamed her for that, for keeping their family apart. The Lafferty boys didn't like Brenda because she got in their way. Uh, Brenda was willing to engage in arguments with the other brothers because she knew scripture well. And we do this openly in front of, you know, other men. Ron and Dan fucking hated her defying them for going against their teachings and encouraging Alan to do the same. Alan would become furious with Brenda as well when she embarrassed him in front of his brothers. He also then became physically abusive, right? Like father, like brother, like son. Uh, And then in the summer of 1983, daddy comes home from his mission. Watson Sr. is back. Alan and Brenda lived in the Lafferty home in Provo until December of 1983. When Watson moved back, they move out into a duplex in the nearby town of American Fork. Described as a sleepy, white bread suburb alongside the freeway that runs from Provo to Salt Lake City. Uh, Watson become very sick from diabetes, as I mentioned earlier. In late 1983, he uh, refuses medical treatment, as do his sons. They don't want him to do it either. Uh, only herbal, only homeopathic stuff, and he dies September 10th. Ron calls a family meeting when Watson Sr. is dying to discuss funeral arrangements. Alan brings Brenda with him. Ron becomes furious, calls Brenda a bitch, other insults. She storms off in tears. Ron is spiraling. A few months earlier, back in August, back in August, he had been excommunicated from the LDS church, just like Dan. So harder to become next president now. And he's still unemployed. And he's beating his wife, Diana, and continuing to push the idea of plural marriage. Diana would go to Brenda to complain about Ron, and it was Brenda who will convince Diana to divorce Ron, uh, which sends Ron's hatred of Brenda to, you know, a murderous level. Diana had six kids. Uh, She never had a paid job, but she was brave enough to leave. With the help of Brenda, her friends, members of the Highland LDS ward, she initiates divorce proceedings uh, with the church's blessing. And her divorce is finalized in November of 1983. That Thanksgiving, she moves herself and kids to Florida to get far away from Psycho Ron, and he is devastated. He didn't want to spend Christmas alone, so he travels to visit a group of polygamists who live near Woodburn, Oregon. See if he can't round up a new new extra wife or two. Drown himself in some bonus puss to ease his heavy heart. With God's blessing, of course. But where is the cult of the prophets? Why haven't we met those insane bearded motherfuckers yet? Here they are. At the end of 1983, the Lafferty brothers meet a man who called himself the Prophet Onias. What can go wrong when you meet a guy who calls himself the Prophet Onias? His real name was Robert Crossfield. Oh, Bobby C. Oh, Bobby Field of Crosses. And Bobby was working on founding a revived school of the prophets because Bobby Crosses, cool shit. He was a Mormon fundamentalist and polygamist born in Canada's Alberta province in 1929. At the age of 19, he'd contracted tuberculosis, spent nine months in a sanatorium, spent most of the time reading, and one of the texts he read was the Book of Mormon. Crossfield said that he received the spirit of the Holy Ghost in the sanatorium, and soon, miraculously, his TB was cured. Or it was cured, not because of a miracle, but because, you know, a cure for tuberculosis had just been discovered. Maybe that. Uh, either way, 
He converts to Mormonism, gets married to the temple in Edmonton, works a normal job for a while as an accountant to support a normal one wife, just one single adult puss family. But then in March of 1961, the voice of the Lord or mental illness or his own desires comes to him and reveals that he was chosen to be God's mouthpiece, a prophet. He claims the first words he heard affirmed plural marriage. Totally. Wonder how horny he was when he had that revelation. Bobby Crosses now gets a job as an office manager for a farmer's cooperative in Creston, BC, just north of the Idaho border, about a two-hour drive from here in Coeur d'Alene. Bobby had heard about some polygamists in the neighborhood, and little Bobby downtown uh, wanted to know how they were pulling that shit off. He continued studying fundamentalism in Creston, uh, figuring out exactly how he was going to effectively sell that shit to his wife. By 1972, 11 years after he claimed the Lord first spoke to him, he said he had now received 23 revelations and compiled them into a book titled The First Book of Commandments. He paid to have his book printed and distributed across Canada, excuse me, and the Western U.S. He is a polygamist now. It's never said how many wives he had. LDS Church President Mark E. Peterson finds a copy of this book and has this motherfucker excommunicated. Then in 1974, the Creston area fundamentalists, uh, he was around. Well, they were following the teachings of another lunatic, I mean prophet, when Crossfield received a revelation that he was supposed to lead them. And they were like, no. <laughs> 1975, God told him to use the Onias name, reveals that he was for sure the one to pr- true prophet of the Creston church. Uh, and he gets excommunicated basically from this fundamentalist group now. They're like, get the fuck out of here. You're not welcome in Crest anymore. So Bobby uh, gets crossed off a lot of people's Christmas card lists, now travels down to Idaho, moves just outside of Provo in the early 80s, and he makes connections with two prominent local businessmen, Bernard Brady and Kenyon Blackmore, both of whom were also disillusioned with the mainstream church. Blackmore was a fundamentalist and polygamist, cousin of Winston Blackmore, a polygamist leader in British Columbia who knew Crossfield. Two of Crossfield's daughters actually married to Blackmore's brothers. Bernard Brady had studied the prophecies of John Hiram Coyle, another delusional lunatic. Uh, Coyle was really something. Born in Spanish Fork, Utah in 1864, Coyle claimed that in 1894, the angel Moroni, Moroni, (laughs) the angel moron, appeared before him just like with Joseph Smith and showed him a mine full of gold, but said the gold wouldn't actually be able to be seen until just before the second coming of Christ. But who knows when that's going to be. Moroni also showed Coyle exactly where he start digging, you know, to get the mines ready for, oh, so much gold. <laughs> get ready. You're, you're drowning gold. Uh, the mine was located just east of Salem, Utah, where the Lafferty brothers grew up. And it became known as the Dream Mine. Because it's just a dream that they would actually fucking find gold there. Uh, but really more of a nightmare. Crossfield owned shares in the Dream Mine. So did Brady and Blackmore. This uh, mine incorporated. Uh, they believed in this guy's prophecies. The mine, a main shaft, goes down over 2,000 feet. There's over 5,000 feet of other shafts. (laughs) has produced, after well over 100 years of operation, just over $100 worth of platinum. In 1962, a geological survey was done on the mine, found literally zero traces of anything that would indicate even a fucking trace of precious metals. People who know anything about mining don't expect this dream mine to ever produce shit. It's a joke. But in May of 2018, the mines board reported it still had uh, 7,500 active stockholders. So that's cool. Another one of the prophecies of John Coyle stated that a lightly complected man with white hair who would come from the north with whom the stockholders would rally and bring remarkable changes in and around the mine. Brady thought that Crossfield was the man from the prophecy. Two delusions united together. When the two men met, Bobby Crosses was in the process of organizing the school of the prophets 
and invited Brady to join this prestigious organization, this think tank, if you will. Uh, January of 1985, Crossfield speaks with the Daily Herald newspaper about the School of Prophets, School of the Prophets, said that he established a group in March of 1982 after receiving, of course, revelations. This guy is drowned, the second general drowning in revelations. Uh, he said that they consider themselves guardians of knowledge and the educational arm of Zion. Guardians of knowledge, so self-important. Crossfield later said, trying to refute accusations of being a cult, we're not a sect, we're just a school. We're not a splinter group of the Mormon church. We're, we're not a religious sect at all, which is not really true. New members identified and appointed through revelations. Uh-huh. The members called themselves prophets, but not all of them were revelators. Crossfield explained, the school of the prophets is set up to teach men to become prophets and to become responsible, clear thinking, righteous, whatever virtue you can think of. We try to develop these men to the point where they can receive revelation. The only one to decide that is God. It's very, uh, it's very contradictory summary there. Our school is designed to teach a man to become a prophet. However, many men won't actually have that. It, listen, results vary. Uh, God, at the end of the day, is, is just decides that it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you, what you learn, you know? Why even have school? Also, can you teach people to be clear thinking and responsible and also how to be a revelation receiving prophet at the same time? I don't think so. Bernard Brady recruited more candidates for the school, one of whom was Watson Lafferty Jr., Brady was then soon introduced to the other brothers and impressed especially by Dan Lafferty. Grind, recognizing grind. Or maybe grift, recognizing grift. Or maybe crazy, recognizing grift. Something recognizes something else. Five of the six brothers joined the School of the Prophets. The six, Alan, also wants to join, but fucking Brenda Devil won't let him. She continues to try her best to keep Alan away from salvation and his brothers. The members of the School of the Prophets believed they were going to change history. Of course he did. November 26, 1983, Bobby Field of Crosses, a.k.a. Prophet Onias, claims that God has commanded him to prepare pamphlets <laughs> to send out to the mainstream church. Uh, the pamphlet contained excerpts of his revelation. I love shit like this. That, that sounds like God, right? Taking time out of his busy God schedule to tell some halfwit to make some very important pamphlets. <laughs> that, that's how the most important and powerful being in the fucking universe Likes to get the word out about his revelations through uh, pamphlets. Okay. One of the beliefs expressed in this very important pamphlet was that the 1978 decision to allow black men into the Mormon priesthood was blasphemous. The pamphlet contained, contained racist and hateful language towards black people. Sounded, sounded more like God. God hates puss and uh, loves printing racial slurs in pamphlets, right? 1978 revelation on priesthood, by the way, was an announcement by LDS leaders that reversed a long-standing policy excluding men of black African descent from the priesthood and both black men and women from priesthood ordinances in the temple. Uh, leaders, you know, stated that it originally it was a revelation from God. Joseph Smith had allowed black men to become Mormon priests, but then after he dies, Brigham, pretty racist dude, reverses that policy. Then as LDS began to focus more on South America in the 1950s and 60s and 70s when it came to missionary work, they started to run into problems determining who was uh, African black and who was like just like a dark-skinned Hispanic. Seriously, this is all so incredibly fucking stupid. Uh, also in the US, more and more black athletes are boycotting, playing BYU, just like with polygamy a century earlier. Mormon church facing a growing PR nightmare, becoming a, uh, you know, laughingstock, more and more a uh, frequent target of bad press over this blatantly racist policy. And wouldn't you know it, that's when God speaks to then President Spencer Kimball, telling him, you know what, on second thought, 
Uh, fuck what Brigham said. Uh, black men, they actually can become priests. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I, forgot, I forgot to change it. I don't know what's, what's going on. Well, this creates more rifts between the LDS and FLDS crowds, right? It's pointed by some as just more evidence of the mainstream LDS church putting the demands of men before the proclamations of God, putting the government before heaven. Lafferty's fully in the FLDS camp now. They print, they fold, they uh, you know help distribute 15,000 of these pamphlets. You know, they get mailed around the country and they get all this done in two weeks by working around the clock. Uh, Good for them. Just taking their very important work so seriously. By early 1984, the School of the Prophets is meeting on a weekly basis, often at Claudine Lafferty's home now. Alan, only Lafferty boy not attending. Fucking Brenda, submit already. Such a sassy puss. Towards the end of the winter season, Brenda calls her sister Betty, asks her to meet at a McDonald's between Salt Lake and the American Fork. Tells Betty she's uh, about to leave Alan. Said she's been saving some money up and was going to go live with her grandparents in Missoula, Montana. But then she changes her mind and stays. Damn it. Probably still be alive today if she uh, if she hadn't have, you know, decided to stay. But she loves Alan and she wants her marriage to work. Around this time in early 1984, the School of the Prophets experiences a little shift in their group dynamic. January 8th, 1984, Robert Crossfield receives a revelation where God tells him that he has chosen Lafferty's to be an elect people. For they are the true blood of Israel and the chosen seed. Uh, rejoice. All your financial problems are over, Lafferty's. Bobby Field of Crosses said you are the chosen seed. Uh, get ready for some bonus wife extravaganzas. Uh, six weeks later, Crossfield receives another revelation, instructing him to appoint Ron specifically as bishop of the Provo chapter of the School of Prophets. Fucking huge. It's great news. This is big. This very important appointment actually does wonders for Ron's mental state. He's still a bit depressed from losing his wife and kids and job and everything. Ron writes in his journal, the events of the past year have caused me to do a great deal of research and, on, and scripture study and spend a great deal of time on my knees in prayer. I have been stripped of all my material wealth. My family has divorced me and moved to Florida. I have been unjustly excommunicated from the church that I love so dearly. At the time of his appointment, Ron is living in his car, not defeated though. He wrote that his hardships only strengthened his relationship with the Lord. He also, while still happy with the Lord, uh, pretty fucking mad at Brenda. Krakauer wrote about Ron's mental state saying, the departure of his wife and their six children to a distant corner of the nation nodded him day and night. Over time, his hurt was transformed into an implacable, in, uh, <laughs> a rage that wouldn't go away. And most of that anger was directed at the three individuals who, in his estimation, bore responsibility for Diana's decision to abandon him. Richard Stowe, Chloe Lowe, and Brenda Lafferty. Uh, Richard Stowe, one letter off from Dick Store, by the way, was the president of the Highland Stake and directed the High Council Court that excommunicated Ron in August of 1983. Also helped Diana financially during the divorce. Chloe Lowe uh, previously was friends with both Ron and Diana. Her husband, Stuart, was the bishop of their ward, and he had picked Ron to be his first counselor at one point. Chloe supported both Ron and Diana during initial marital troubles, but then sided with Diana when Ron became you know, violent. She invited Diana and the kids to stay with her twice and helped Diana pack up and move to Florida. Despite the role of the Stowe's and the Lowe's in his family's departure, it seemed that Ron harbored the most hatred against Brenda. February 24th, 1984, Ron is the first member besides Crossfield to receive a revelation in the school of the prophets. Rejoice! You're back, brother Ron! Things are better than ever! Ah, yeah, he's working on a borrowed computer. (laughs) What he starts doing is he'll close his eyes 
and he'll just hover his fingers over the keyboard. And then you know what? He just lets God take the wheel and God types out whatever he wants. And, or he types out a message from the back of his own mind. Ron receives two messages this way, February 25th and 27th, right? He's no longer an abusive maniac who pushed his family away and threw away his career and some with no one uh, but themselves to blame for sleeping in his car. He's a very important prophet. He describes the experience to his brother, Dan saying, it's like a blanket falls over you and you can feel the Lord's thoughts and you write them down. The February 27th message, pretty intense. Ron claimed that the following words came directly from God. Are you fucking serious, Brenda? You think you fuck with me? I mean, Ron, are you crazy? Do you know how important Ron is? For starters, puss walker, he has a dick. And I, God, love dick. Dick walkers uh, remind me of me. So shut your fucking lady mouth. And do what Ron says. God damn it. You make me so fucking angry, Brenda. You best get in your car. The second you hear this shit and drive your ass to Florida, you have a week to bring my, I mean Ron's, family back to me. I mean him. And Diana better be ready to fucking suck my dick. I mean Ron's dick. And whatever. And let him explore other puss caves. Praise be. Okay, for real now. Uh, Here's what the February 27th, that was the rough draft. And then it got cleaned up. (laughs) And Ron claimed that God told him the following. Uh, actually speaking to Diana through him, said, thou art a chosen daughter, but my wrath is kindled against thee because of thy rebelliousness against thy husband. And I command thee to repent. Have I not said that it is not good for a man to be alone? I will not suffer my servant Ron to be alone much longer for even now I am preparing someone to take thy place. Nevertheless, if thou wilt speedily repent, I will greatly bless thee and thy children. Otherwise, I will remove thee from thy place, for I will not suffer that thy children should suffer longer because of thy disobedience. I've heard the prayers of my son, Ron, and I know his desires. And it is only because of his desires that I have spared thee until now, i.e., I'll fucking kill you if you don't get back with Ron. Uh, weird that Ron's revelation was exactly the kind of thing Ron had been, you know, uh, fucking dreaming of ever since Diana left. Ron would claim to receive a total of 20 revelations in February and March of 1984. Late March, one of these revelations changes everything. God now instructs Ron that Brenda and her baby Erica need to be, quote, removed. This revelation was handwritten and preserved by Ron, which didn't help him in court. Uh, It said, Thus saith the Lord unto my servants, the prophets, It is my will and commandment that ye remove the following individuals in order that my work might go forward. For they have truly become obstacles in my path and will not allow my work to be stopped. First thy brother's wife, Brenda, and her baby, then Chloe Lowe, and then Richard Stowe. And it is my will that they be removed in rapid succession and that an example be made of them in order that others might see the fate of those who fight against the true saints of God. And it is my will that this matter be taken care of as soon as possible. And I will prepare a way for my instrument to be delivered and instruction be given unto my servant Todd. (laughs) Gotta love God's servant Todd. And it is my will that he show great care in his duties for I have raised him up and prepared him for this important work. And he is not like unto my servant, Porter Rockwell. And great blessings await him if he will do my will, for I am the Lord thy God and have control over all things. Be still and know that I am with thee, even so, amen. Man, God really not much of a wordsmith, is he? Kind of rambles on. Like, I feel like if I had to listen to this God speak for a long time, I'd start to space off, you know? I'd end up getting like yelled at by God for checking random scores on ESPN and stuff, you know, while he's still talking. Also weird that God would be so focused on Brenda a baby, Richard Stowe and Chloe uh, Lowe uh, back in 1984 instead of, I don't know, maybe like ruthless North Korean dictator 
Kim Il-sung, uh, Richard the Night Stalker Ramirez, who had started to terrorize Los Angeles, or just anyone else uh, actually causing a lot of evil uh, real-world problems. Ron shows his revelation to Dan first. And Dan recalled that Ron was frightened. He told his brother, well, I can see why you're concerned. As well, you should be. All I can say is make sure it's from God. You don't want to act on commandments that are not from God. But at the same time, you don't want to offend God by refusing to do his work. Over the next few days, these two fucking geniuses who are obviously sane think a lot about this message. Ron quickly, uh, you know, uh, then conveniently has another revelation that shows him that he is indeed the mouth of God <laughs> and that Dan is the arm of God, which they will interpret to mean that Dan is supposed to kill the people Ron lists in his revelation. Totally. Cooler heads prevailing here. A couple of real sound minds. Uh, Ron soon receives yet another revelation. This one's directed towards Dan. It says, Thus saith the Lord unto my servant Dan, Thou art like unto Nephi of old, for never since the beginning of time have I had a more obedient son. And for this I will greatly bless thee and multiply thy seed. For have I not said, if ye do what I say, I am bound to continue in my word, for I have great responsibility and great blessings in store for thee. That is all for now. Even so, amen. Why is God talking like this in fucking 1983? <laughs> why, why, why is he using like old medieval language? That makes literally no sense. Like God, like humans, much less smart than God, able to update our language, kind of stick it with the time. God feels like this fucking old dude here who just can't understand how he like he doesn't know how computers work. He doesn't know how to text. He doesn't know any of the, like the, the slang. <laughs> Using thee and thou, a couple hundred years too late. Uh, after hearing this revelation, Dan was willing to do anything that the Lord commanded him according to his brother Mark. Oh, he's pumped. He's so important. The brothers now read a passage from the Book of Mormon where Nephi the prophet wanted to know the mysteries of God and was commanded to cut off Laban's head. Nephi resisted at first, but God told him. It is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Now these crazy fucks are truly ready for some murder. March 22nd, just before the start of the weekly meeting of the School of Prophets, 1984, Ron asked member Bernard Brady to look at his revelation and Brady will later tell author uh, John Krakauer, as I read it, my hands began to shake. I got cold all over. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Brady told Ron that he didn't want anything to do with this and that he thought the revelation was wrong. And then Ron and da Dan, you know, were just kind of butthurt and quiet for the rest of the meeting. Then Ron went on a honeymoon with his uh, brand new wife, Becky. Never legally married her, just another lady. He, you know, started calling his wife after some kind of quick culty ceremony. Uh, maybe just, you know, slept with her to uh, sanctify it. Misses their next meeting, March 29th. So does Dan. Watching Junior attends this meeting, though. And so creepy, he brought a pearl-handled straight uh, razor with him. And he asked the group to dedicate the razor as an instrument to be used to destroy the wicked. But the group refused. The delusional Lafferty weirdos are starting to really creep out the school of prophet weirdos now. Or school of the prophets. Tensions now rising within the school. Ron has started to challenge Bobby Field to crosses. Crossfield now, uh, now felt he was wrong about Ron earlier. Ron had changed from the kind of man he once was. He was not supposed to lead them. Ron soon openly criticizes Crossfield when Bobby asks all the members to get jobs so they can fund the city of refuge that will be established below the dream mine. This was supposed to be some kind of compound where the faithful would live and be protected by God as the end times, you know, start to begin their end timey process. You know, cult, cult, cult. Ron said there was no need for them to work because God would provide for them. Got a, got a real wackadoodle power struggle going on here. Two shitty wizards fighting for the control of the hearts and minds of a small pack of unstable idiots. April 5th, 1984, Ron shows a copy of his murder revelation to all the members of the School of the Prophets. And they hold a vote to determine if the revelation is legitimate. It's not. 
is what they determined. Only Ron, Dan, and Watson Jr. think it's true. And that breaks up the band. The three brothers walk the fuck out of the meeting. No longer associated with the school of the prophets. Bernard Brady now truly worried that Ron's going to kill somebody, but doesn't do shit about it. Uh, what he does uh, do that helps nobody, he signs and notarizes an affidavit, April 9th, part of which states, I, Bernard Brady, do hereby depose and say that I have reason to believe and fear that lives of the following 10 people are in jeopardy. Robert Crossfield, Bernard Brady, David Olson, David Coronado, Tim Lafferty, Mark Lafferty, Brenda Lafferty, Brenda Lafferty's baby daughter, Chloe Lowe, and Richard Stowe. But again, Brady doesn't uh, actually give uh, this information to the police. Just puts the affidavit in his desk drawer so he can, I guess, you know, show it to the police later and prove that he is an asshole who makes terrible decisions. Uh, Great news, officers. Uh, Not only can I testify at the murder trial, I can prove that I thought they were going to kill people before they did. Like, way before they did. And I didn't tell anybody. No, I did something better. I wrote my suspicions down on a piece of paper and then hid it in my drawer and didn't talk about it. (laughs) Not surprising, I guess, really, that a member of the School of the Prophets would do something that dumb. Later in April, Dan tells Alan about his revelation, the revelation about killing Alan's wife and baby. Ron is present during this conversation. Alan is shocked. Uh, He does ask why his baby Erica needs to be involved. And Ron tells him because she would grow to be a bitch just like her mother. Totally. From God's mouth to Ron's. God doesn't just hate grown puss. No, he hates baby puss too. He knows what it turns into if not ripped from the earth like a weed from the garden. Uh, Alan said he couldn't accept this because, you know, it wasn't his revelation. He said he would defend his wife and daughter with his life, but this dumb motherfucker never tells the police, never tells Brenda about this. Man, Watson Lafferty really did a number on his kids, didn't he? Six sons, not a single one of them ended up being worth a shit. Betty McIntyre, Brenda's sister, tells John Krakauer that if Brenda had known about the revelation, she would have left Alan for good and would still be alive. Unreal. Didn't warn his wife, man. Didn't warn his wife. Nothing. Fuck you, Alan Rafferty. Uh, He is alive today, by the way. Lives in Saratoga Springs, Utah. Working as a, check this out, lifestyle coach and motivational speaker. Yep. Found that out on his Facebook page uh, where he shares all kinds of spiritual guidance. Who the fuck is going to this guy for guidance? Wonder how Brenda's family feels about this career. May of 1984, Ron and Dan leave Utah on Ron's 1974 Chevy Impala. They head out on a road trip across the West into Canada, stopping along the way to visit a lot of fundamentalist communities and do a lot of fucking, get get in a lot of spirit wife action. Ron and Dan talk about the big revelation as they're road tripping. As the days and weeks pass, Ron becomes agitated and bloodthirsty, according to Dan later. Ron eventually tells Dan he believes the revelation will be carried out July 24th. Dan begins to question his brother. Ask God if he should help Ron or if he should leave, but he feels like God wants him to stay. At some point along the trip, they split up and drive separate vehicles for a while. And in mid-June of 1984, Dan arrives in Wichita, Kansas, supposed to meet Ron, but uh, is a few days early. Dan gets a job as a day laborer, meets 24-year-old Richard Knapp, who went by the name Ricky. Man, could have went by the nickname of Dick. Could have been Dick Knapp. My favorite Dick name this week. He's a sleepy little Dick. Uh, Ricky had just gotten out of jail. He and Dan became friends and Dan learned that Ricky was homeless. So he invites him to join the road trip. They leave Wichita at the beginning of July. During a visit to a polygamous commune in Oregon, Dan quickly marries another spirit wife, mother of four named Lorene Grant. He and his new wife separate from the group. They plan to meet back up at the Confederate States of the exiled nation of Israel. Yet another polygamous compound. 
This one in Big Water, Utah, led by a man named Alex Joseph. Now, this compound, well, I don't know, maybe not a cult, but probably a cult. Uh, definitely an interesting commune full of what sounds like was a, a lot of sex. Some people live in there were Mormons, but, but many were not. Others Catholic, others Protestant, others not religious, uh, some openly bisexual or gay, a lot of polygamy. From what it sounds like, a lot of, a lot of swinging, a lot of partner swapping, all united, it seems, by uh, some form of libertarianism and, uh, you know, some thread of shared interest in a, a version of Christianity, at least. I feel like I could do a whole podcast series on all the peripheral characters in this suck. Uh, anyway, Ron and Ricky now took Lorene's two older sons with them and her two younger kids travel with Dan and Lorene, uh, the, the newlyweds. When the four men reach California now, driving all over the place, not taking care of their families, as God so often prefers for his prophets, they meet a 23-year-old named Charles Chip Carnes at a rest stop. Chip described as a petty thief from New Mexico. Uh, Chip's brakes had failed and now Ron offers to help him get to a repair shop in Sacramento. Chip couldn't pay for repairs, so he sells his car to the mechanic gives the money to Ron for the gas, joins in, uh, uh, joins up with the group as they make their way to southern Utah. Meanwhile, at the Confederate States of the exiled nation of Israel, that compound in Bigwater, Utah, Lorene asks Dan for a writ of divorcement. The new spirit marriage uh, falls apart real quick. I don't know. Who, who knows why? Maybe he pulled a Lundgren, tried to shit on her chest or something. Who knows what God is telling this uh, degenerate? Uh, he now wants to return to Utah County solo before Ron arrives and sets out on the 320-ish mile drive towards the Provo area from the border of Utah and Arizona. Uh, Ron and his group stayed for just one night in Big Water, and he shared his revelation with polygamous group leader Alex Joseph there. According to Chip, Joseph tried to talk him out of completing the revelation. But Ron was determined to go through with it, and the date was fast approaching. And Alex also never contacts authorities, so fuck that guy too. So many people saw this coming. None of them did shit. None of them warned Brenda so that she could take her child and flee. Dan now visits his second wife, Anne Randack, in Spanish Fort Canyon, spends a day and a night with her, does a lot of fucking, then leaves July 23rd to travel to Orem to visit first wife Matilda and the kids. Then heads, does a lot of fucking again, then heads to nearby Provo to meet Ron, who's arrived with Ricky and Chip. They discuss plans for the next day uh, when they would remove Brenda her baby, and others listed in the Revelation. Going to go on a big murder spree on behalf of God. They had previously talked about going to Salt Lake City for the Pioneer Day celebrations, but on July 23rd, God confirms for sure to Ron that July 24th is the day. Uh, Pioneer Day, by the way, commemorates the day Brigham Young and his followers arrived in the Great Salt Lake Valley, July 24th, 1847. Alan, Brenda, and baby Erica all currently live in an American Fork, about 10 miles from the edge of Provo living along the I-15 corridor that connects, you know, Salt Lake City to Orem, Provo, many of the uh, communities we've talked about today. Uh, July 24th, 1984, Alan Lafferty leaves his home before sunrise. He drives 80 miles up the interstate uh, to work at a construction job east of Ogden. Called Brenda during his lunch break. They talked for a few minutes and she put Erica on the line. She told him everything was fine, said goodbye, and that will be their final conversation. And possibly her last conversation with someone not trying to actively murder her. According to the American Fork Citizen newspaper, Brenda was last seen alive around noon that day. Her neighbor heard a commotion in the duplex around 3 p.m., assumed it was the TV. Neighbor saw Ron Lafferty at the duplex between 4.30 and 5 with three other men. Alan arrived home around 8. Uh, he thought it was strange that the front door was locked because Brenda almost never locked it. When he walked inside, he heard a baseball game on the TV. Found that odd. Brenda didn't care about baseball. Turned off the TV. Now the apartment was eerily silent, like no one was home. 
Alan initially assumed Brenda and Erica maybe went out for some reason. He turned around, planning to go outside to see if she was at her neighbor's house, then sees blood on a light switch near the door. Alan then sees Brenda lying on the kitchen floor when he goes back inside, surrounded by what he described as a lake of blood. Kneels beside her, touches her shoulder. Her body is cold. Alan tried to call 911 using the kitchen phone that was lying on the floor next to Brenda, but heard no dial tone. Phone cord had been yanked out of the wall. Now he rushes to the bedroom to try and find, uh, use the other phone. Looks in Erica's room, sees her slumped over in her crib. Diaper she was wearing, soaked with blood, her still bloody body, surrounded by blankets. Truly cannot imagine how I would feel walking in on all this. Probably a mixture of wanting to die, but first wanting to kill everyone responsible. Phone in their bedroom, also not working. So Alan, covered in a lot of blood himself now, goes to a neighbor's apartment, calls for help, and then calls his mom. Then returns to his apartment and waits for the police. He later will tell author John Krakauer, I went to Brenda and I prayed. And then as I stood, I surveyed the situation a little more and realized there had been a grim struggle. There was blood on the living room walls, the floor, the doors, curtain. Right away, Alan thought he knew was responsible. Fucking of course he did. Because they told him they were going to do this. And Mr. I'm a life coach now didn't do shit to help his wife. I think that's unforgivable. I fucking hate Alan in this story. He was questioned all night by the American Fork police who initially assumed he killed Brenda and Erica. But Alan believed it was his oldest brother, Ron, who had recently returned from traveling with Dan. Detectives talked to Alan's siblings, his mother, to establish a motive. The police also issue an APB for Ron's 1974 light green Impala station wagon. He and Dan, nowhere to be found. Speaking with Krakauer later from prison, Dan said he was innocent, also said he killed Brenda and her baby, but was innocent of committing a crime. When asked to explain, he answered, I was doing God's will, which is not a crime. Interesting story, bro. According to Dan, just after noon on July 24th, 1987, himself, Ron, Ricky, and Chip drove to Alan's apartment. Dan admitted to killing Erica with a 10-inch bony knife and used the same knife to kill Brenda. Dan said about the murders, it was like someone had taken me by hand that day and led me comfortably through everything that happened. Ron had received a revelation from God that these lives were to be taken. I was the one who was supposed to do it. And if God wants something to be done, it will be done. You don't want to offend him by refusing to do his work. Uh, The events of the murder will be discussed in more detail during Ron and Dan's trials. Ron Lafferty charged with two counts of first-degree murder, July 25th, 1985. Entire state reporting about the murders. Despite the rumor mills, uh, or excuse me, despite the rumors floating around that Brendan and Erica were killed in a religious ritual, American Fork Police Chief Randy Johnson initially refused to confirm or deny this, worried about embarrassing the church. Uh, there were also rumors of hit lists with more victims, but this was initially deemed strictly speculative. Speaking with the Daily Herald for a July 26th story, Allen said that he knew his brothers had changed radically, but couldn't anticipate anything like this happening. Uh, bullshit, Allen. They told you. This was coming. You would watch them become radical. Way to take the easy way out and try and alleviate yourself of any guilt. Uh, he added that Ron and Dan had tried to influence his religious beliefs, but said, I let them believe what they wanted and let them do their own thing. Well, that's not always a fucking cool attitude, dude. Uh, July 27th, both Dan and Ricky Knapp charged with capital homicide. No one knows where they are, but they've been charged. And I said, I'm sorry, I said 1985 earlier, uh, one slip. It's, we're still in 1984. I'm sure many of you are furious. <laughs> uh, no one uh, knows where, yeah, where they are, but they were charged. Chip Carnes uh, was also wanted, but not charged yet. Chief Randy Johnson revealed that investigators had come to believe that Ron had a handwritten revelation, which told him to commit this crime. If this document does exist, it is a vital piece of evidence and we would like to see it. 
also acknowledged that the police believed the hit list was real and warned the public that the men were armed and dangerous. Johnson added that the killings could have been motivated by Ron's belief that Brenda was the reason his wife left him. Or, or Chief Johnson, killings motivated by God's divine will, you heathen government stooge fuckface. Uh, FBI joins the case the same day to assist the American Fork Police with their manhunt. Unlawful flight warrants issued against both Dan and Ron. Three days later, July 30th, 1984, Chip Carnes, Ricky Knapp, both arrested in the early morning in an early morning raid in Cheyenne, Wyoming. They were staying with Chip's half-brother who didn't know Chip was wanted. Someone submitted a tip that they thought the men in a light green Ford station wagon were fugitives. The police checked the Utah license plate number, knew the car was the one sought by the police. Ricky arrested while sleeping in the car in front of the house. Police tell Karn's half-brother and family to leave the house where Chip is inside sleeping. Uh, he gives them the key, tells them Chip has a shotgun in the closet. Karn's and Knapp tell the police that they left Dan and Ron on July 25th on the Utah-Nevada border in Wendover, Nevada, and they didn't have any transportation. 20 miles east of Wendover, investigators discover a boning knife believed to be the murder weapon. Based on some tips, thrown out of the car, but with info from Chip and Ricky and more, uh, they find it. Hail Nimrod, nice investigative discovery. Uh, July 31st, Ricky and Chip both charged with counts of first-degree murder. Two counts of aggravated burglary, two counts of criminal conspiracy. The additional charges were added because they were involved in planning the murder of Richard Stowe, who was involved in Ron's excommunication. They also burglarized the home of Chloe Lowe. Uh, her house had been burglarized the afternoon of July 24th. Lowe family on vacation in California at the time. The burglars broke a window, ransacked the home, stole 100 bucks and an electric siren. And good thing they weren't home or there would have been likely another bloodbath. After Ricky and Chip are arrested, the police find the hit list slash revelation from God. Lowe and Stowe now go into hiding, fearing for their lives since the killers are still on the run. The investigation shifts focus to Bigwater, Utah, where the polygamist Alex Joseph currently is the mayor. Two of Joseph's wives confirmed with the Daily Herald that the four suspects had visited town five days before the murder. August 3rd, 1984, Dan Lafferty's ex-spirit wife, Lorraine Grant, gives an interview to KUTV uh, where she said Dan believed he was sanctioned by God to establish a city of refuge in Salem, Oregon. Lorraine tells the outlet that she met Dan at a commune, that he was recruiting people to live in his future city slash cult compound, and that Ron preached about his revelations, but Dan could supposedly... Uh, and also Dan could supposedly heal commune members, right? Totally, two of God's favorites. Cream of the meat sack crop. Uh, Dan had told her about a revelation that they might have to kill to build a city. She initially dismissed it because she didn't think he could do it. She told the outlet, he said he felt so strong about the Lord's love for him and about his mission that if he had to, he could kill. Four days later, Ron and Dan were captured by the FBI. August 7th, 1984, in the buffet line <laughs> at the Circus Circus Hotel Casino in Reno, Nevada. What a weird place to finally be arrested. God commanded his prophets to eat, to fuel themselves for their divine missions with instant mashed potatoes, green beans and corn drowning in butter, Pet some pretty dried out turkey breast, uh, low quality ribs, brown gravy made from a powder and a lot of salt, some mystery dessert stuff that is cheesecake-ish and weirdly delicious, but maybe not cheesecake. A few days earlier, Investigators had found a journal somewhere on the Idaho-Wyoming border where the Lafferty's had been hiding out for a bit, contents of which led them to believe the brothers could be in the tri-city area of Lake Tahoe, Reno, and Carson City. Dan and Ron arraigned the evening of their arrest. They requested to represent themselves, but warned by the judge that was a terrible idea. 
The U.S. Marshal's Office announced that it planned to dismiss the federal charges against the brothers and turn them over to the Washoe County Sheriff's Department so they could then be extradited quickly to Utah County. Lafferty's declined to return to Utah voluntarily. They launched a media campaign to protest their innocence. Ron claims that the Mormon Church, which controlled everything in Utah, would prevent him from receiving a fair trial. Ron gives an interview with Phil Barber from the Reno Gazette Journal and Tom Gardner from the AP on August 10th. Said he met a woman in Reno the last time he visited earlier that summer, that he and Dan returned to the city after the murders because this woman, uh, you know, they were into her. They liked Reno. Explained that they were at the casino because Ron's companion worked there. Both interviews uh, mostly rants against the LDS church and church leaders. Ron denied being part of a religious cult, saying, I am part of no group. I didn't want to belong to any group or be tagged as a member of any group. Just a couple of saints talking directly to God while hanging out in Reno. Just a couple of guys trying to help bring God's kingdom to earth by playing some nickel slots, taking in a buffet, checking out a Wayne Newton show, and trying to sleep with a blackjack dealer. August 13th, Dan releases a statement through Ron, which is given to the AP. It says, We have been abused and falsely accused and portrayed to be dangerous criminals, which we are not. We are not guilty of any of the crimes for which we have been accused over the past few years. If in the present matter my life were to be taken, so be it. I could go with a free conscience. He added that the time is at hand when the true criminals will be made known, when things done in secret will be known to the world, and the things done in the closets will be known on the housetops. Uh-huh. Big self-righteous talk for a couple of baby killers. August 17th, the Lafferty's are extradited to Utah. Obviously part of God's plan, part of their trials and tribulations. That day, Ron does an interview with United Press International where he says that he and Dan were driving to Nevada on July 24th and didn't find out about the murders till the next day. Uh, he claimed that he and Dan decided to get some supplies, travel to the mountains, you know, uh, but their new companions, Ricky Knapp and Chip Carnes, drugged them at a motel in Wendover, stole their car and belongings, probably killed those other people. Damn you, Chip and Ricky. Ron and Dan appeared in court August 20th, heard the charges against them, two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of aggravated burglary, two counts of criminal conspiracy. A judge refused to allow them to each see each other without lawyers present because prosecutors worried they would work on planning an alibi together. Both men, uh, again, say they are going to represent themselves in court. Of course, uh, they are geniuses, uh, but agreed to accept consultation from a public defender if they had legal questions. In an exclusive interview with the Daily Herald, published September 10th, Ron Lafferty admits... I did, receive a trans, uh, I did receive a revelation from God, naming certain individuals. But that revelation did not command myself or anyone else to kill anyone. And it is not my hit list. God has not told me to kill. Whoa! Denying God's revelation now. Does he suddenly uh, not care about his salvation? Does he care more about the courts of men than the court of the Lord? He denied that he had plans to build a city of refuge. Denied being a cult leader, saying, There is no cult, never has been, that I've been associated with. I'm not the leader of any religious group. But weren't you, Ron, a, a tiny, pathetic school of the prophets cult, but still? Ron denied being excommunicated due to polygamy. Instead, said he was excommunicated for disobeying the law of the land, disobeying the church president, and teaching false doctrine. September 11th, Ron, Dan, Ricky Knapp bound over to a district court. In exchange for his testimony, Chip Carnes allowed to plead guilty to two charges of conspiracy and aggravated burglary. October 15th, 1984, Ricky Knapp pleads guilty to second-degree murder and two charges of aggregated, aggravated burglary agrees to testify against the brothers. October 24th, 1984, Dan and Ron declared mentally fit to defend themselves at trial. Although the judge did note it was unwise for them to act as their own attorneys. <laughs> All right, boys, I will allow you to defend yourselves as neither of you 
are deemed to be truly mentally ill. However, I would still advise against it, as you are both in the court's opinion, dumb as a pile of rocks, complete and total idiots. I cannot stress that enough. Not a good idea, you half-wit dingalings, but it's a free country, for better or worse. After their competency hearing, the brothers held a press conference where Ron told the media to note that the words kill and murder were not used in his revelation. He said of the concept of removal, I've never interpreted what that word means. This is pathetic. Same day, the brothers provide the Daily Herald with a copy of Ron's revelation, part of their not very good defense strategy. Dan said in a phone interview, there are a lot of reasons we felt it needed to be out. We were prayerful about it. For some reason, we felt prompted to do it. I think it should be made public. Mm -hmm. Praying about it. That's their defense strategy. Reminds me of a reminds me of a song, actually. Whoa, we're halfway there. Whoa, living on a prayer. Take my hand, Ron. We'll make it, I swear. Oh, pulling revelations out of thin air. Something like that. Bon Jovi saying something like that, I believe, about the Korean War. Triple M, not happy. I'm leaning on a different songbird lately. Uh, Dan also provided insight about certain parts of the revelation. He said he understood the instrument in the revelation to be a scepter of power and knew that Ron had this instrument. Also said that some dude named Todd. <laughs> Fucking love Todd showing up the revelation. Todd was the hitchhiker that Dan picked up near a Spanish fork. Uh, and that before Ron received the revelation, Todd, special Todd, God's Todd, God's Todd, really, had written down a dream about riding a white horse and <laughs> carrying a sword. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, all right. Years later, Mark Lafferty will testify that Todd was a hitchhiker their dad picked up and brought home for food once and then separated from the family after some disputes. Uh, but shows up in this fever dream. Both Dan and Ron say they didn't know what Brenda must have done to cause her to be named in the revelation. Dan added, I had no antagonism towards Brenda. I don't know why she was such an obstacle in the Lord's eyes. There's something the Lord knows that I don't. She must have been fighting against things that she shouldn't have been. Look, everybody, I thought Brenda was fine. But, you know, the Lord, he didn't care for her. I mean, as we all know, God hates puss. And she was born with strike one, right? And God really hates a, a, a sassy, have my own mind, mean to speak it kind of puss. So there's strike two. And she wasn't down with polygamy. So kind of, sort of asking an agent of the Lord to smite her and her little puss baby uh, who would have followed in mama devil puss's footsteps. I mean, I'm just saying. November 2nd, 1984, Judge Robert Bullock sentences Ricky Knapp to three consecutive five-year-to-life terms. Judge also commits Ron to a state mental hospital <laughs> to determine if he's competent to stand trial. This is his second mental evaluation. November 30th, Chip Carn sentenced to three consecutive terms of, you know, five years to life. December 5th, defense attorney Richard Johnson. Dick fucking Johnson. Double dick. My new favorite dick in this dick laden suck. Filed a motion notifying the court he planned to raise a defense of diminished mental capacity for Ron Lafferty. December 29th, Ron attempts suicide in his jail cell. I thought that was against God's laws. Ron becoming a real wayward son, a son of perdition, one might say. Uh, his trial was scheduled to start in six days. Down, Dan found his brother hanging in the cell adjacent to his. He left Ron's cell around 10 a.m. to speak to the jail commander about Ron's recent violent behavior. Dan worried that his brother had been possessed by an evil spirit. The jail commander said, uh, uh, yeah, sure, buddy. I'll look right into that or something like that. Uh, no, he later said that Ron and Dan had been fasting and praying for a week to exercise <laughs> the evil spirit. These two people are ridiculous. When Dan returned to his cell at 10, 13 a.m., he found Ron hanging by his shirt from a towel rack. Paramed paramedics were unfortunately able to revive him and transported him to a hospital. 
He was comatose and in critical condition. His brain had been deprived of oxygen, oxygen for several minutes. Comatose for two days, but would regain consciousness. Uh, Dan believed that his recovery occurred because of divine intervention. Ron Lafferty discharged from the hospital January 2nd, 1985. Uh, despite his brain being deprived of oxygen for several minutes, he actually was not any noticeably dumber than he was before. Kind of a silver lining to a suicide attempt. One of the positive, uh, you know, one of the positives of just being super dumb is not having to worry about brain injuries because it's already so damaged. Uh, Judge Robert Bullock ordered that Dan would be tried alone to allow Ron time to recover and undergo further psychiatric evaluation. Dan still insisted on defending himself and put his two attorneys in advisory roles. Jury selection starts for Dan's trial January 3rd, 1985. Opening statements begin on January 7th. Chief Jeopardy, uh, Chief, Chief Jeopardy, uh, Chief Deputy, Utah County Attorney Wayne Watson described the murders to the jury in detail. Wayne told the court that Dan killed the baby Erica, this is so rough, by cutting her throat down to the bone. Brenda had been savagely beaten, strangled with the vacuum cord. Then the knife used, uh, with the knife used to kill Erica, uh, had been nearly decapitated. Watson told the jury, evidence will show you this defendant after four months or more of careful planning and deliberation with the aid of his brother unmercifully beat Brenda. Ron then handed the knife to this defendant. He walked down the hallway to where baby Erica was crying, mommy, 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 and slashed the baby's throat. These motherfuckers. Dan chose to defer his opening statement. Ricky Knapp testified on January 7th that Brenda pleaded for both herself and her child to be spared during the attack. During his opening statement, Wayne Watson told the jury that Dan and Chip Carnes sawed off the butt of a shotgun, got another gun from his brother Mark. Mark told Dan he wanted a 20-gauge shotgun from Brenda's house. Dan drove them over to American Fork. Ron got out, knocked on the door. No one answered. They, they, they leave, but then return a little bit later to try again. Ricky testified that he and Chip stayed in the car. Per Watson's opening statement, Dan now knocked on the door. This time, Brenda did answer. Dan told Brenda he wanted the 20-gauge shotgun. She refused to give it to him. He got into an altercation. Dan asked to use the phone. Brenda said no. He then forced his way into the house, began beating Brenda with his fists. Knapp testified that Ron would follow his brother a few minutes later. After Dan went inside, he said he heard a lot of noise. He heard Brenda say, I knew it was going to come to this. Forgive me. I'll never do it again. Knapp testified. She said, don't hurt my baby, please. Said that at least four times. Also heard Brenda being called a bitch and getting bounced off the walls. Fuck. Another trial witness would support this testimony. Neighbor, right? It's a duplex. They got a attached wall. Neighbor Corey College uh, testified. I heard a loud noise next door. It sounded like somebody sliding heavy furniture across the floor. I don't know how to describe it. It was just loud. Things on my wall shook. According to Ricky, everything was quiet after about 10 minutes. Dan came out of the house now with blood on his clothes. Knapp also admitted during his testimony to breaking into Chloe Lowe's home, stealing cash jewelry after the murders, uh, said they missed the turnoff to the Stowe house, which they thought was a message from God that Richard Stowe shouldn't be killed. Okay. Also testified that Ron expressed gratitude to Dan for killing Erica. According to Ricky, Dan said, I felt the spirit. It was with me. He said, it was no problem doing the baby. Yikes. Both men said their brother would be relieved and expressed, uh, both men said their brother would be relieved. Yeah, about this, Alan, and expressed no grief. Knapp said that after they left Utah, he registered them at a motel in Wendover. They cleaned up, went out to a casino to try and make some money that night. Just have some fun, have some drinks. Alan Lafferty also testified against Dan. He admitted he was told about the revelation that called for the deaths of Brenda and Erica. He testified, I told him that he should be absolutely sure if it was what God wanted. 
I told him if he were correct, then he should inform me. So I would have that understanding. Fucking Alan. Almost as bad as his brothers. These batshit crazy idiots with their revelation bullshit. Uh, He compared the revelation to the Bible story of Abraham being commanded to kill his son Isaac, saying, if God required me to do it, I would do it. But he, Dan, should tell me. And unless that happened, I would defend them with my life. Alan said he did not tell Brenda because he didn't want to worry her. And he didn't think anything would come of it. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if he still tells himself that was uh, the right thing to do. Uh, Next, members of the school of the prophets testified against Dan. Prophet testimony, right? Must have held some extra weight. Member Barry uh, Crowther testified about two revelations received by Ron, which were reviewed and evaluated in April of 1985. Uh, One of the revelations contained a a hit list. I'm sorry, this is, I had that 85 again. For some reason, that one little newspaper, 84. Uh, One of the revelations contained a hit list and the second revelation contained a killing instrument. The state rests January 8th, 1985. Dan decides to give his delayed opening statement now. Dan first told Judge Robert Bullock that he wanted to challenge the case. The jury was excused. Dan argued that the state didn't prove a crime was committed, but instead proved a prophecy was fulfilled. Uh-huh. Like I've said in past episodes, I love when this brand of crazy shows up in a courtroom, right? When these fuckheads who convince themselves and a few people around them that they can truly speak to God, uh, believe their own bullshit so thoroughly, they actually think a judge and or jury will also believe it. And they never do. He argued that the state failed to prove conspiracy, but the judge denied these arguments because these arguments were based in nothing but insanity. Minor setback. Dan, despite the judge not doing what, you know, Dan prayed so hard for the judge to do, now presents his same bullshit argument to the jury in his opening statement. (laughs) Then he has School of the Prophets President David Olson testify about the March 29th meeting at Claudine Lafferty's home. He said on that date, Dan suggested that a razor be brought to fulfill what I believe is this revelation here. At the April 5th meeting where the revelation was revealed, Dan expressed his support for executing his brother's vision. Dan said in court, I admit, I determined it was a true revelation. The judge now warned him that he was incriminating himself. (laughs) But Dan continued saying the subject matter, although it was frightening, was important and true. Uh, I feel like he expected the jury to stand up and applaud him. Good, good for you. Oh, glory be to God. No, they're horrified. Olson recalled that Dan aggressively suggested they go along with the revelation, but only one other member and the two brothers had actually read it. Tim Lafferty pleaded the fifth when asked if he was a member of the School of the Prophets, but admitted, yeah, he saw the revelation, denied being at the meeting when the revelation was shown to other members. Mark Lafferty admitted to being a member and to attending the April meeting. Also testified that Dan came to his house July 24th and took his 12-gauge shotgun. Chip Carnes testified that Ron and Dan went inside Brendan's home July 24th, that he heard someone call Brenda a bitch, slut, and a liar. Ugh. Carnes testified that Ron asked Dan if he was sure about it when Brenda didn't answer the door the first time. According to Carnes, he told him he felt like doing it. He felt right about it, and he wanted to go back and do it. He saw Dan enter the house first with the black pouch that can carry a bony knife, that carried a bony knife. He heard Dan and Brenda shouting at each other and testified, I couldn't understand exactly what he was saying. She started screaming. It sounded like a lamp got knocked on the floor and broke. Ricky said, Ron, you better go in there and help him before he gets caught. And right after Ron went inside, It just sounded like a bomb exploded in there. Similar to Knapp's testimony, Chip heard Brenda screaming that she knew it would come to this and begging them not to hurt her baby. The evidence against Dan is overwhelming, partially because Dan is helping the prosecution not denying any of the violence, right? He's just simply trying to reframe it. Not a ruthless double murder. No, just fulfilling God's prophecy. And of course, this defense strategy uh, does not work. January 10th, 1985, Dan found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of conspiracy, 
two counts of aggravated bur- burglary. January 11th, Dan sends to life in prison. A unanimous vote is required to sentence someone to death. The Daily Herald learned that the jury reached an eight to two decision regarding the death penalty. Two jurors just couldn't decide. And you know, this is Utah where there's a fair amount of people raised to believe in the gift of personal prophecy. So I'm not surprised that a few of them were like, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there. Maybe God did want him to kill Brenda. You know, could have been one of Satan's trollops. I don't know. Dan told the jury, if you want to realize if I were in your situation, no, he goes, I want you to realize if I were in your situation, I would impose a death penalty. I wouldn't want you to give me life imprisonment as a favor. Okay. Uh, Dan spoke with the Daily Herald after his sentencing. He was asked if he was worried about the other inmates because he murdered a child. And he said, I imagine there will be people with that feeling. I know there's concern of that kind, but I'm taking it one day at a time and I'm trusting in the Lord. I try not to fear men. I, I fear the Lord. I don't feel it'd be good to try and hide. I will go up there to the Utah State Prison and make the best of my circumstances. You know what? Say what you want to say about Dan. He is faithful to his beliefs. I mean, his beliefs are preposterously fucked, but he does stay true to his convictions. January 15th, Judge Robert Bullock formally sentences Dan to two life terms plus eight terms of five years to life consecutive. The judge says to Dan, in my 12 years on the bench, I have never presided over a case involving a more cruel, heinous, senseless crime than this murder, nor have I ever seen an accused with so little remorse or sorrow, nor have I ever seen a case with more conclusive conclusive evidence. It is my intent that every day and every minute of your life shall be spent behind bars. Hail Nimrod. Suck first God. Nimrod loves to see the wicked punished. Uh, Dan did say in rebuttal, oh, excuse me, excuse me, judge. Uh, I just got a a revelation just right now. Uh, God wants you to shut the fuck up. No, he didn't, he didn't do that. Uh, now on to Ron Ron. January 28th, Judge Bullock determines that Ron lacks the ability to comprehend the nature of the charges against him, lacks the ability to assist in his own defense. However, it was noted that he had shown improvement, might be competent for trial soon. Jury selection for Ron's trial starts April 25th, 1985. Excuse me. Opening arguments began on April 29th. He's okay now, is what they think. Deputy Attorney Wayne Watson describes what happens on July 24th, 1984, gives graphic crime scene details to the jury. Uh, Watson says he would bring in Ron's ex-wife, Diana, telling the jury that Brenda offered Diana solace during the divorce, which made her the family troublemaker. Ron's attorney, Richard Johnson, double dick, defers his opening remarks. Ricky Knapp, first witness at this trial, gives similar testimony to the first trial. Notes he was the one who told Ron to go in and help Dan. Uh, Watson Lafferty Jr. testifies that he knew about the revelation about seven months before the murders. Also said that at the April 5th you know, meeting, Ron brought up another revelation about the consecration of an instrument, which the prosecu- uh, prosecution argued was the 10-inch knife used to kill Brenda and Erica. The two revelations caused dissension amongst the group. Crossfield presented his own revelation that there were individuals in the group trying to take over and something like they would be destroyed if they did. Right? They had a little revelation off. Watson testified that while Ron never said his job was to remove Brenda and Erica, he did talk about murdering people. According to Watson, Mark and member Dave Olson uh, said they would quit if that revelation was accepted. Dick Stowe, Chloe Lowe now testify about how they helped Diana during the divorce process. Stowe testified that Ron was excommunicated for apostasy, defined as a total desertion or departure from one's religion and failure to provide. Lowe said she spoke on the phone with Ron in spring of 1983, mentioned that Brenda, or and that he mentioned Brenda was the family troublemaker and that she kept all the other wives stirred up. Alan Lafferty testified that Ron told him all the brothers would be involved in rebuilding Zion and the city of refuge, 100%. He knew Ron and Diana were having conflicts over religion, 
Brenda wanted him to stay away from Ron and comforted Diana during the divorce. Alan said about the revelation, I was shocked about it in a way, and I didn't show my true feelings, really, as I saw it as an effort on Ron's part to show me the seriousness of his hurt. I think he wanted to impress me to influence my wife, not to meddle, which I tried, but she had her free agency. Alan's kind of a bitch in all this. Uh, Ron's trial, Chip Carnes testified that Ron was talking about slashing people's throats, doing away with people. Dan said, are you sure? We just can't shoot them? And Ron said, no, the Lord said we have to slice their throats. Uh, After the murders, when they were driving to Salt Lake City, Ron bragged about how he beat Brenda, strangled her, pulled her head back and slit her throat. He pulled a knife out of his boot, banged it against his knee and said, I killed the bitch. I killed the bitch. And that real, real godly guy here. And then he thanked Dan for killing baby Erica. The defense did not present much of an argument. I mean, what do they have? Ron's attorney wanted to argue that he was suffering from mental illness at the time of the murders in hopes of getting a manslaughter conviction. But Ron forced his attorney to prematurely rest their case by refusing that strategy. He told Judge Bullock, it seems it would be an admission of guilt. I am not prepared to do that. Years later, the Daily Herald reported that Ron believed he would lose his God-given powers if he received help from attorneys, physicians, and other professionals. What powers? He doesn't have any powers. Uh, He might not have been legally insane, but he was very insane. May 2nd, 1985, Ron Lafferty found guilty of capital homicide. Conspiracy and aggravated burglary. The penalty phase starts May 6th. Prosecutors pursue the death penalty. The defense calls four doctors who determined Ron was insane at the time of the murders. Two psychiatrists initially thought Ron was strongly controlled by radical religious beliefs, but they would not call it mental illness. And sorry, those two psychiatrists uh, called on by the prosecution to refute the defense attorney's psychologist. May 7th, 1985, the jury sentences Ron Lafferty to death. Ron tells the judge he would prefer a firing squad. When asked if he wanted to make a statement, Ron said, I would like to say the charges against me are false charges. By asking for this mode of death, I am not admitting guilt, and I don't feel the evidence is that sufficient for a conviction on this seriousness or on this series of an offense. Ron also receives two five-year-to-life sentences for aggregated burglary and two one-to-15-year sentences for conspiracy. December 1985, Chip Carnes receives parole date for December 14th, 1999, Ricky Knapp uh, had his parole set for 2004, and they both would end up getting out. Uh, Over the next few years, Ron works on appealing his case. January 11th, 1988, Utah Supreme Court upholds the convictions and the death sentence. May 6th, 1988, Ron's execution date set for June 24th of that year. But then Ron receives a stay of execution just a few days before he was scheduled to die. A judge ruled that the Utah Supreme Court did not have a complete case transcript when it rejected his first appeal. Ugh. November 8th, 1988. Utah Supreme Court rules that it would reopen parts of Ron's appeal. Um, and sorry, I'm making sure I had the date right. 1991 marks a major turning point in Ron's case. January 15th, his attorneys argued that he should have been, uh, should not have been, excuse me, executed because he was incompetent to stand trial. All this fucking rigmarole. December 9th, 1991, Ron Lafferty's capital murder conviction and death sentence overturned by the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. They found that the trial judge applied the wrong legal standard when finding him competent. He's granted a retrial. It'll take several years to get going. Just wasting more money now. April 4th, 1994, Ron again declared competent for trial. Jury selection starts March 4th, 1996, but then is postponed for at least two weeks because of his mental state. Such a shit show. Ron apparently now believed he was possessed by spiritual travelers. (laughs) And holy shit, this next part made me laugh out loud so hard when I first came across it. 
Ron tried showing up to court with an exit only sign taped across his ass. <laughs> to quote, prevent a homosexual evil spirit from entering and possessing him. Yes. Oh, it's so good. What was going on there? Was he getting butt fucked in prison? Maybe starting to like it. Maybe starting to worry that he was gay and that was therefore not going to uh, uh, let him enter the celestial kingdom or something. I, I love that he believed that A, evil homosexual spirits are a thing. B, they like to enter your body through your butthole. C, you can keep them out if you just put up an exit only sign across your butthole. <laughs> Sounds like old Ronnie Ding Dong could have used my paranormal rape repellent. Whee! And happy Halloween! Thanks, Woody. Uh, Woody's spirit must have left his wooden puppet body to swing through and say hello. Thanks, thanks, little guy. Uh, good to know Willie, Woody's spirit is still around. Been so long since we've heard from him and Charles Gutman. Anyway, uh, Ron believed that spiritual invaders had possessed at least two trial witnesses, the judge and the jurors. Also believed the only way to neutralize or fight these spirits was to confront them. <laughs> uh, Ron thought that the traveler out to destroy him now was called Moroni Lucifer Hitler. Okay. Other travelers he was worried about included uh, Brigham Young, another one called uh, Beelzebub Mussolini Italy. <laughs> Beelzebub Mussolini Italy. Sounds like my nonsense. Uh, Beelzebub Mussolini Italy Antonio Banderas. Uh, and the spirit of his father, which Ron believed uh, had possessed Dan. Cool. Despite all this bullshit, Ron still found competent to stand trial. March 18th. Uh, retrial officially goes gets uh, going March 25th. Dan Laverty comes to court to testify April 1st, 1996. Shares some new info. Testifies for the defense, who now argues that Dan was the lone killer and that he influenced Ron heavily. Dan testifies about how he adopted many of his father's beliefs regarding modern medicine, how he became a fundamentalist, how Ron came over one day to straighten him out, but instead he got him to, uh, Dan got him to agree with him. Next day, Dan testified he was the only killer trying to save his brother now, said the murders were just a matter of business, told the jury, I'm not ashamed of what happened, so I'm going to be callous. I assure you it will be relatively graphic. Dan said that they were driving away from Brenda's duplex uh, the first time, and then he felt a strong impression to turn around. He went to the door, felt prompted to force his way inside when Brenda refused to let him in, said he tried to knock Brenda unconscious but was unsuccessful, so pulled her down and sat on her while holding her wrist from behind. He uh, said that uh, Ron now entered the house, asked what Dan asked Dan what kind of weapon he was going to use. Dan said he was going to use a knife. Ron now began beating Brenda so she would lose consciousness. Brenda kept fighting, which caused blood to splatter around the room and on Dan. Said he lost his grip on Brenda's wrist. Brenda got up, ran for the door. Dan grabbed her by the hair before she could escape, hit her again, knocked her unconscious. Ron then brought over a piece of vacuum cord that he'd cut from the cleaner, tried to put it around Brenda's neck, but a force wouldn't allow it. So Dan took the cord and did it. Uh, then grabbed the knife, walked into Erica's room. Erica was standing in the corner of her crib and crying. Dan said he spoke to her for a few minutes, then killed her. What the actual fuck? Testified, I felt a peaceful assurance. When I did it, I didn't feel anything. I was not affected emotionally by the things that had happened. Dan said he then washed a knife off and before using it to go back and cut Brenda's throat. Finally, Dan said he wasn't testifying to help his brother, but because he believed he was now the prophet Elijah and preparing the world for the second coming. What a fun world for these two losers to mentally live in. They're not baby-killing pieces of shit who abused their wives and neglected taking care of their families, rightfully ended up in prison. No, they're God's warriors. Very important prophets doing work that us lowly heathens couldn't possibly comprehend. They are strong where we are weak. Next, three psychologists testify that Ron was not legally responsible for what he did due to serious mental illness at the time of the murders. 
But then, you know, again, two doctors testify for the state. Ron did not suffer from mental illness. Dr. Noel Gardner told the court, Mr. Lafferty has a different set of labels attached to common notions. People shouldn't be labeled mentally ill because they believe in God, angels, spirits. There are many ideas which are false beliefs, but not delusional. A false belief isn't necessarily a sign of mental illness. Bingo. If you could use that defense strategy to get away with these murders, holy shit, what a nasty can of worms that would open, right? Any other asshole could now blame religious beliefs for committing horrific crimes. They didn't kill Brenda because God, by the way, they killed her because she wouldn't accept their delusions and then used misguided notions of divine guidance to rationalize what they wanted to do. This is about their egos, not God. They killed her because she dared to defy them and helped Ron's family get away. So they taught her a lesson and killed her baby out of spite, out of being fucking sadistic assholes. The revelations they heard came from inside their heads, not outside. Uh, Finally, surprise witness Mark Hoffman, a pipe bomb killer, testified on April 9th that Dan confessed to both murders when they shared a cell in 1989. Dan told him that after killing Erica, he returned to the kitchen, saw Ron standing over Brenda. Ron said Brenda was dead because he choked her, but Dan could see she was breathing, and then he cut her throat. All of that does not affect the jury's opinion. Ron Lafferty again found guilty of all charges April 10th, 1996. Then April 16th, jury votes for the death penalty a second time. Fuck this guy. Before the sentencing, Ron called the trial bogus. Are you double jeopardy? This guy's an idiot. Called the judge a lying bastard punk. May 31st, the judge imposed the death penalty for the murder convictions. Ron chose death by firing squad again. When asked if he had anything to say, Ron answered, go ahead and do what you're going to do, punk. (laughs) That's a quote. Maybe he was watching some Dirty Harry movies around that time. But being as this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Uh, Ron's next bid for a retrial, that was my shitty attempt to clean this Ron's next bid for a retrial was rejected, September 1996. Give it a rest already, you piece of shit. Finally, February 23rd, 2001, Utah Supreme Court upholds the death penalty. Despite arguments, Ron, again, was mentally ill and incompetent. The court ruled that Ron's extreme religious beliefs did not constitute insanity and that it was possible he was acting bizarrely to get an acquittal. Several more appeals denied over the following years. In the end, there will be no firing squad. Ron Lafferty will die on death row November 11th, 2019 at the Utah State Prison at the age of 78. Died of natural causes. His execution date never officially set. But Ron had lost a final federal appeal in August of that year, and the attorney general's office estimated his execution was just months away. Ron's attorney, Therese Michelle Day, said that Ron was mentally ill and unable to assist his counsel. Ron believed he was in prison because of a conspiracy between the government, the LDS church, and unseen spiritual forces. He thought his attorneys were against him, and that one attorney was actually his sister reincarnated and possessed by an evil spirit. Day said, per the Salt Lake Tribune, Through it all, Mr. Lafferty himself never believed he was mentally ill or incompetent. One expert said that if he was guilty of faking anything, he was guilty of pretending to be normal when he was not. Mr. Lafferty, like other mentally ill prisoners, was not treated for his mental illness as he should have been. I don't know. I don't care about this guy. Dan Lafferty remains in prison. He's 75 years old, still clinging to all the same insane delusions he had back in 1984. Although he supposedly privately expressed remorse for killing Brenda and Erica to some of uh, Brenda's family members. He considers prison to be his monastery and continues, it seems, to believe he is still receiving revelations. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. 
What a tale. Uh, Before I share a few final thoughts, how about another sponsor? A really cool, totally real sponsor. Hello, I'm Dan Rafferty, here to talk to you about how you can put an end to family strife and stress by adopting the Rafferty way, how to take control of your family. A series of instructional family videos fully endorsed by the School of the Prophets, the world's foremost authority on celestial revelation. Here is but a small sample of the heavenly wisdom to be found inside our instructional DVDs. Do you have a real sassy mare of a wife? A willful woman who attempts to lead your children astray by not submitting to your rightful godly patriarchal authority? It's probably time for some belt lessons. Step one, gather the entire family, wife and children, and anyone else in the area, including siblings, cousins, in-laws, even neighbors and others who feel like family in your living room. Step two, ask your wife to stand beside you for a special presentation you'll be giving the assembled group. Step three, slowly take off your belt while reminding your wife of a few recent transgressions, times she has directly usurped your authority. Step four, sit on a chair and ask your wife to bend over your knee. If she won't do it, surprise her with a hard punch to the stomach. She'll now be in the perfect doubled over position, ready to be taken over your knee and spanked. Step five, get to whipping. Ten good lashes across your bottom should drive the point home that you won't stand for backtalk. It'll also put the children in line. They'll know that if mom's not above a hearty, godly whooping, neither are they. Step six, demand your wife apologize, promise to never endanger the family's salvation again with her disrespect, and give you a respectful kiss on the lips to let everyone watch you know that there's nothing to be alarmed about. Everything has been fixed. Step seven, Make your wife entertain your guests with cookies and fruit punch while the men present discuss God's will, the wives talk about how much they love their priests, and the children play quietly somewhere where they can't be hurt. Final note, if your wife is especially good at taking a punch and doesn't fold over, start swinging that belt wildly. Face, back, breast, wherever you can land a shot. Blast off 40 or 50 times. Don't stop until she's unconscious. Next time, I promise, she'll present her bottom like a repentant good girl. Until we speak again, I'm Dan Lafferty, bros before hoes, God hates puss, and as always, family first. Well, that was, uh, that was pretty fucked up. But you know, that's Dan Lafferty for you. <laughs> on brand. Definitely on brand. Okay. Uh, very interesting uh, for me this week to dig into this while also watching the Hulu miniseries Under the Banner of Heaven About It All with Lindsay. Uh, for the show, they definitely, am- great show, actually, by the way. Very well done. I mean, they take some creative liberties. Uh, you know, they definitely amp up certain details of Krakauer's book, deviate from the true story in a few ways to as a you know character here, make a different character more sympathetic and likable there. Overall, most of the series stays true to the source material. Uh, so where is the cult in all of this? I think it's everywhere. I would argue that this story is about a whole bunch, a whole network of mini cults. The Lafferty brothers turn their families into cults. The school of the prophets, members, you know, they're, they're leaders of several family cults, a bunch of little cults where each home is a compound. Each father is a prophet and cult leader. You know, women and children, they're the followers, people forced to accept beliefs or be abused, threatened with death. In Brenda's case, even killed, not allowed to work outside the home. So they're, you know, dependent on the cult leader, not allowed to have relationships. They're cut off from the outside world. 
There's, you know, people sexually abused by their cult leaders slash fathers, husbands, right? There's no refusing your priests, i.e. your husband's sexual demands in these FLDS sex. No room for children to complain of mistreatment in any way. Other women and their kids, if they have them brainwashed into all of this as spirit or sister wives. Diana Lafferty had to flee across the country with help from a few people to hide from Ron or she could have been killed. Probably would have been. I didn't get into it here, but Matilda, wife of Dan Lafferty, was threatened with death if she didn't go along with Dan's plans for polygamy or plans for anything else, right? You accept the male head of the household's wishes or you're punished. Her stepdaughters had to fucking run away to avoid being, you know, raped by their stepdad. The Lafferty boys, just like other School of the Prophets members we didn't really dig into, believed they were all chosen by God uh, in some way to help take the LDS church back to its roots, you know, back to when the LDS church based in the Great Salt Valley, when the U.S. didn't own it and Mexico didn't care about it, very much wanted to be its own nation, a theocracy built mainly on strict patriarchy, polygamy, and personal revelation, a true cult at that time, a a real-life version of Gilead from The Handmaid's Tale. A nation where men are taught that they are gods in waiting, where they're powerful prophets and women and children, lots of children with lots of women, right? Is there is their destiny, their duty? These people are their possessions. A place where God's laws trump the laws of man, where the whole nation is a big cult, a cult where members can be killed through blood atonement, where each home is a cult within a cult, a collection of satellite cults, all pain ties, fueling some mother cult above them. Man, some religions, uh, strange, strange, strange. What a strange thing in general it all is. Like, uh, you know, like many things, uh, best in moderation. Comforted by feeling like God has a plan for you, like there is some sort of celestial guidebook to give you direction. All right, cool. Maybe cool. Cool if that guidebook doesn't lead you to believe you're destined to subjugate others. Cool if it doesn't make you think you have an inside track to God's will and start fucking punishing others because of that. When that happens, it gets real not cool real fucking quick. Enjoy your sermons, religious meat sacks. I know that the overwhelming majority of you compartmentalize your faith and don't push your beliefs on those of us who find those beliefs restrictive and unnecessary. And that's, you know, if it makes you a better person, honestly, good for you. Just please don't go full fucking Rafferty on the rest of us. Time now for today's takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Lafferty siblings grew up as devout members of the LDS church. Maybe too devout. The patriarch. Watson Lafferty Sr., abusive to his children and his wife, refused to allow his family to use modern medicine when they were sick, distrustful of the government. Watson died from diabetes because he refused treatment. All of this rationalized through religious doctrine. Number two, Dan Lafferty began to explore LDS fundamentalist teachings after a member of his local ward spoke about plural marriage. He discovered a text called The Peacemaker, which some historians believe was written by founder Joseph Smith. The Peacemaker described how plural marriage and the submission of women could end all of the world's problems. Number three, the Lafferty brothers joined a group called the School of the Prophets in late 1983. The School of the Prophets, originally founded by Joseph Smith in the 1830s, discontinued after a few years. This modern group led by a man who called himself the Prophet Onias, a Canadian who had been exiled from a polygamous group after being excommunicated from the LDS church. He believed that the Lafferty brothers were chosen by God to help him change the church back to its original values. Number four, Dan and Ron Lafferty said that they killed Brenda Lafferty and her daughter Erica because Ron received a vision from God instructing him to remove them. Brenda was the only Lafferty wife who refused to allow her family to become fundamentalists. She wouldn't allow Alan to join the School of the Prophets and she debated with Ron and Dan often. She encouraged Ron's wife to divorce him and uh, she did, you know, taking the kids with her from Utah to Florida. Ron and Dan then saw Brenda as an obstacle in their quest to restore the church. Neither Dan nor Ron felt any remorse 
for the murders of Brenda and Erica uh, because they believe they were doing God's work. And number five, new info. Where is everyone today? Uh, Dan's still alive, incarcerated at the Utah State Correctional Facility, uh, 75 years old. Family matriarch Claudine Lafferty just passed away uh, not too many years ago, January of 2016 at the age of 96. Mark Lafferty died September 11th, 2023 at the age of 73. Uh, Seems as if the other Lafferty brothers all still alive. Alan, as I mentioned, a motivational speaker, unreal, living in Utah. He's uh, remarried. Not certain if he uh, ever had more children. I hope not. 2022, Brenda's sister, Sharon Wright, uh, spoke with A&E True Crime and gave her opinion on the true motive of her sister's murder. Actually, it's Brendan. Uh, I'm sorry. Brenda's sister's name is Sharon Wright Weeks. And she said, when I went through the whole retrial in 1996 and got to go through the whole court process, it was really amazing to see how it had nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with fundamentalism. It was a good old fashioned crime of passion. Weeks also said that she did not support the death penalty and felt for the brothers because of their abusive childhood. Dan had actually written to her parents and expressed remorse. Ron never did. Uh, Doesn't seem to be much, if any, information online about Diana, Matilda, their kids. They have most likely chosen to keep their lives private after everything they went through at the hands of the Lafferty brothers. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The school of the prophets. Cult killings has been sucked. Thank you again to Olivia Lee for initial research this week. Digging up a lot of old newspaper articles. Well done. Thanks to the Space Lizards on Patreon for supporting this show. Ad-free episodes coming so soon. Thanks to the team here, including uh, Mr. Tyler C. recording this episode today. Next week, just in time for Halloween, let's get creepy. Let's talk about demons, child sacrifices, and a suck that will be a blend of history and horror and true crime. The story of Gilles Duray. Medieval serial killer or victim of a witch hunt. Burn the witch or kill the child killer. Uh, Gilles de Ray uh, was a French nobleman who lived in the 15th century. He was a brave knight, seemingly had it all for a guy from the Middle Ages. Money, power, fame, reputation for being pious. Uh, Even friends with military hero and Saint Joan of Arc. If the charges that led to his death are true, he became addicted to the feeling of power he got when he murdered children. His targeted children came from lower class families. He would lure them to the castle with food, toys, or clothes, excuse me. Uh, He convinced parents to give him their children in exchange for money or basic necessities, assured the parents that he would train their boys to be knights or choir singers. Many of the victims were the children of beggars who came to the castle to look for food. Gilles also explored, allegedly, occult practices like alchemy and summoning demons who promised him gold. He murdered children as a sacrifice to these demons. Even when he didn't get any gold, he continued killing. Jill even had his employees kidnap and bring children to him. After some of his business dealings went wrong, rumors began to circulate about children disappearing at his castles. Jill uh, was charged with witchcraft, uh, heresy, yeah, heresy, murder, and sodomy. He and his accomplices gave confessions of their horrific crimes against children. Estimated that Jill DeRay murdered 140 children, but there could have been many more victims. His well-documented murder trial, extremely sensational and scandalous, and we will cover it next week. Right now, we will cover this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. All right, first update from Respectful Sack. Uh, Chandler Kelly, paying some respect to a fallen great-grandpa. Chandler writes, Hello, Dan. This is my first time writing in after all these years. And I'm writing in from work while listening to your new episode. And I just wanted to thank you for doing this topic. I feel as if this war never got the recognition that the other wars got. 
Even when I was in school, I seem to recall barely touching on the subject other than a few important dates. Though I probably only feel this way because I'm connected to it through my great-grandpa. So here's a story. I thought maybe you might like to read it. First Sergeant Carl Kelly was in the Jackson National Guard when he, called, when he was called to serve in World War II. He went ashore at Utah Beach slash Normandy, was later wounded and decorated with the Bronze Star for Valor. During his 11 years in the military, he received a total of three Bronze Stars, at least two of them for Valor, and three Purple Hearts. Upon being deployed to Korea, he received a battlefield commission and was a second lieutenant when his unit was caught in the horrific fighting just south of Changbong, uh, Ni, and as he and others tried to withdraw the 15th FAB towards Hong Song. He was killed in action for which he received a posthumous Silver Star. The Silver Star is posthumously awarded to 1st Lieutenant Carl L. Kelly, 0226-2336 Infantry, Army of the United States, a member of Headquarters Company, 1st Battalion, 38th Infantry Regiment, 2nd Infantry Division, who displayed gallantry in action against an armed enemy on February 12, 1951, in the vicinity of Hong Song, Korea. On that date, the 1st Battalion, 38th Infantry, was securing the withdrawal of a field artillery battalion along a mountain road while under heavy attack from the enemy, who were occupying the high ground to the rear and along both sides of the withdrawing column. In spite of he- heavy enemy machine gun and mortar fire, Lieutenant Kelly reconnoitered the enemy weapon positions, which were blocking the withdrawal. He then organized the driver and artillerymen whose vehicles had been destroyed into fighting groups and led them against the hostile positions. With complete disregard for his personal safety, he conducted repeated aggressive attacks, wiping out enemy forces and weapons which were trying to block the road and prevent further movement of the vehicles and artillery. Besides inspiring aggressiveness and instilling confidence in the groups of artillerymen and personnel from other units whom he led against the enemy, the conspicuous actions of Lieutenant Kelly served to center the fire of the enemy upon him. Although this fire became increasingly heavy, he continued to expose himself in leading the assaults until finally he was struck by enemy fire and fell mortally wounded. The gallantry, aggressive leadership, and selfless devotion to duty displayed by Lieutenant Kelly reflect great credit upon himself in the military service. My grandpa is still around to this day. Him and his two brothers also went into the military, and he's the only one still here today, and I'm so glad he is. He's the best grandpa that I could ask for. So out of five stars, wouldn't change a thing. Keep up the great work, and thank you for the awesome podcast. Sincerely. Chandler Kelly. Well, thank you, Chandler. Uh, may your great grandpa, Lieutenant Carl L. Kelly, rest in peace. What a brave bastard. That is an incredible story. Uh, Bojangles salutes his memory. Next up, super sucker, Jack Erlenbaugh. Shares some Korean War family history. Uh, I love being lucky enough to hear these little slices of forgotten history. Jack writes, hey, Master Sucker, my grandfather and his twin brother were drafted into the Korean conflict and into the Marines when both of them were 18 years old. Because of the laws protecting families with multiple family members from serving in direct combat, think Saving Private Ryan, my grandfather ended up as a cook for the majority of his deployment in California. My great-uncle and my great-aunt were both deployed to Korea. The details of my great-uncle's service were sparse, and he often decided not to talk about the horrific things he saw and did, but one story he always shared. My great-uncle was part of one of the Marine garrisons that were stationed at the DMZ, 38th Parallel, after it had been loosely established and guarded against the northern Chinese soldiers. They dug into foxholes, the front lines, and fought hard to prevent the Chinese from crossing the DMZ. Behind the lines, they set up massive tents with cots in them, a mess, semi-permanent latrines, and generally set up a fortified camp that operated as a mostly permanent base further back from the front lines. Both sides would mortar the other using rocketed grenades, like those used in World War II. The Marines sent a twel- set a 12-hour sentry rotation to prevent from being surprised. One day, my great-uncle was told he would be the sentry on that 12-hour posting. He dutifully watched his small company keeping an eye out and preventing surprise. 
During his 12-hour assignment, the enemy, was atta- the enemy attacked, and he engaged in active combat. A few of his guys were wounded, and so he was apparently left as the only man able to continue to watch the line as a sentry. So when his 12 hours were up, he was told to stand guard another 12 hours until some relief troops could be found. He and the others in the foxhole stayed awake for about 24 hours total, watching the line, maintaining the ground, and protecting the troops next to them, sometimes engaged in small skirmishes and firefights. At the end of his second 12-hour watch in a row, he was sent back to the semi-permanent camp and fell asleep on his cot. When he woke, he was confused to be staring up to the tent into the open sky. There was a hole in the top of his tent. He stumbled out into camp, unable to find anyone. He wandered out to the back of camp until he saw some of his fellow soldiers in foxholes dug in. They yelled at him and said, Herb, where have you been? We thought you were dead. Confused and disoriented, he asked them what happened. Apparently, after he fell asleep, the northern Chinese had made a major push to break the line of the 38th parallel and had raided their encampment, shelled their camp to shit, and pushed the Marines back to a more fortifiable position. He was so dead tired from the previous watch, he slept through that entire thing. (laughs) That's fucking incredible. He went back to the tent to grab his stuff to rejoin his guys behind the camp and discovered an unexploded mortar shell stuck in the ground next to his cot. The hole in the roof of his tent was from a shell that should have exploded directly next to him, killing him instantly. He survived by a fluke. He believed to the day he died, he was protected by God and that he was saved from death by divine providence. My great aunt drove Jeeps in Korea, ferrying the Marines back and forth. They married when they returned to the U.S. and retired to Missouri. Great Uncle Herb, uh, or yeah, Herb, I don't know if it was a name. I think it was a name you say, Herb. Great uncle Herb, <laughs> sorry, died at the age of 78 after a long and fulfilling life. My great uncle and great aunt never received recognition for their active combat service. Sorry for the length, but that's what I think of when I think of the Korean War. Thanks for reading. If you have, keep on sucking, Jack. Uh, well, thank you, Jack, man. What a crazy 36 or so hours that your great uncle experienced. Holy shit. I wonder how often he thought of waking up next to that unexploded mortar shell the rest of his life. Also wonder if he didn't really, uh, you know, let shit get to him too much after he returned home from that war. I imagine any bad days he had post-war paled to the shit he experienced when he was in combat. Uh, thanks for letting us hear about some heroes. Bojango salutes them as well. And then finally, hard rock and sack Jonathan Sayre shares some recent encounters with some of the best music ever written about the Korean War. He writes, Hello, Team Sucksacks, and the almighty heavenly hot father daddy supreme. As I mentioned in the subject, I'm not joking. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck you're doing, Mr. Cummins, but as I'm listening to the Korean War episode and all of the Bon Jovi songs being harped out all willy-nilly and shit, I walk out of the kitchen of the restaurant that my wife and I own in our little town, and lo and behold, on the radio, I hear Bon Jovi's Wanted Dead or Alive. Odd. Then, as I'm leaving work, I stop by a local store, walk into here, yeah, you fucking son of a serial killer, Bon Jovi's living on a prayer. (laughs) I think you're fucking with our brains, and I like it. Keep killing it, sir. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Also love the new stand-up special. And if this email was too long, well, you can just politely go blow your butthole out, buddy. <laughs> Jonathan Sarah. Sarah. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Man, what a lucky guy. What a lucky guy you were that day. Sounds like you had a great day. And I hope you're having a great day again today. Just like the song goes. Oh, if there's one thing I hang on to that gets me through the night, I ain't gonna do what I don't want to. I'm gonna live my life shining like a diamond, rolling with the dice, standing on the ledge, show the wind how to fly when the world gets in my face. I say, have a nice day. Hey, hey, have a nice day. For real. Have a nice day, Meat Sacks, and have fun with that. 
next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Scared to Death, Time Suck Each Week. Please don't think God is telling you to remove human obstacles this week. God is not taking special time to talk to you. Sorry, but you're not that important. Neither am I. None of us are. Just for the love of gosh, just keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. What a weird twist it would be after all of that. We hear in a few weeks that uh, Dan Lafferty just fucking levitates out of prison. And then Zion is here. We're like, oh shit. I was wrong. That lunatic is the chosen one. But I doubt it. Also, uh, how cool is it that I happened to, I just picked a song randomly. And when I did my little commercial, as I just finished the words I was reading, by complete coincidence, it ended just like this. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>